You're listening to the Northern Hunter Podcast, home of all things hunting, fishing, and outdoors in Alaska. Hey guys, this is Dalton here. I just have a quick segment to uh, bring to you guys here before we get into the main show. I wanted to let you guys know that in this episode we have here with Brian, we get into some deep discussions about a few different topics and uh, Brian is uh, expressive in his language and i just wanted to let you guys know that uh if you have sensitive listeners in the vehicle with you or wherever you're listening to this podcast uh, you might want to uh, tone that down or maybe just listen to this one on your own or if you don't want to hear that language then we're just letting you guys know we try to keep this podcast pretty family friendly but uh, we didn't want to clutter up the show with a bunch of excessive bleeping we're just letting you guys know this is not for sensitive listeners so i hope you guys enjoy the show also Another quick announcement is we have a recent partnership that we have announced with Batum 907, Bear Attractants and Lures for Bear Baiting. We have a discount code through them now. I know we'd said in the show before that we do not have that, but we do now. Listeners get 10% off from Batum 907 if you go to their website. On the promo code slot at checkout, you can type in TNHP. That's the abbreviation for our podcast name, the Northern Hunter Podcast. So TNHP at checkout. We'll get you guys 10% off. We would appreciate it if you guys went and took advantage of that and helped support Jess and Beta 907. All right, enjoy the rest of the show. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. I'm your host, James Payne, and I'm joined here with Northern Hunter co-founders Dalton Gray. Hello. And Mariah Humphreys. Hello there. And I'm sure everybody has seen from the title today, but we have the great pleasure of sitting down with Brian Call from Gritty. How you doing, man? Good. I'm looking forward to this. Let's talk some bears. Yes, sir. Yeah, we uh, we really appreciate you coming on the show and uh, being willing to share some of your insights on on bear hunting and getting out in the woods this time of year. We're all we're pre-recording this a little bit, but it's uh, we're all on the edge of our edge mm-hmm. of our seats, man, trying to get yeah. out there. Yeah, I think so. by the time this airs, it'll be May. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to say this one's coming out May first. So, I believe so. so people will know if I'm correct on that when it comes out. Folks, but. A lot of folks already have baits in the woods. I know yeah. I will. Hopefully the snow's gone, but yeah. we'll, we'll see. It's different every year. Yeah, so, but, uh, <laughs> so we're going to be, uh, I think by this time we'll have two episodes out or at least kind of more like one and a half about our favorite style of bear hunting, which yeah. is setting up baits in thick country where there's very limited visibility and just getting right up tight and close with these bears. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you are wanting to get out and chase these things around in the mountains and do more of a spot and stalk style, which I highly recommend most people do both. Yeah. That's what we're here to talk about today. So yes, sir. Brian, you are a, uh, uh, avid bear hunter, we'll say, and have done a phenomenal job of putting out a lot of films and just kind of showcasing the whole spot and stalk style the world and, and kind of exposing that side of things so um why don't you go into a, a, a little bit about let's start off with how you got into that and why you think it's important i, I think that's yeah. kind of a a baseline yeah we like to touch on is, is the importance of bear hunting i grew up uh, with the typical like my dad was a big time bow hunter and mostly for deer and a little bit of elk and we hunted the coast a lot because i'm from oregon Okay. And uh grew up in Oregon City, which is uh a little town, like it's not so little now, but when I was a kid, went to Oregon City High School. I didn't really hunt bears mm-hmm. um when I was younger. Uh it was mostly all bow hunting and it was all deer and uh, like I said, a little bit elk. But then 
I always dreamt about it. Whenever I looked at outdoor magazines, I mean, mm. bear hunting was always something I was so was, I drool over, dream about. Yeah. For some reason, two animals that just, that I just were like, for me, um, pinnacle like experiences, animals I want to chase was mountain goats and bears. Hmm. Mm. And I think maybe it's because I like fur more than horns. Like, I think I'm yeah. really a sucker for, <laughs> yeah. that's why I like tar too. Like yeah, there's something right. about yeah. fur that I, I got furs everywhere. Like they're <laughs> laying all over the house. I got, I like fur. Um, and uh, I think, I don't know where that comes from. It just is. Mm. So I always wanted to do it. Well, one year in two, it was 2007 was the first time um, that I actually hunted bears. Okay. And my uncle said, hey, I'm headed up to Prince of Wales Island, and um, it's this hunt. Come and join me. It's going to be fun. Maybe it was 2005. But it was right in that window, right? And so mid-2000s, and I just, just dreaming about it. So I went to, New I went to uh, Prince of Wales Island, and... I hunted coastal black bears first time in my life mm. and we saw some giant bears. And then I took my biggest black bear I've of all, I think, I don't know how many I've killed now over the years, but, um, it's a good problem to have. I've lost track. <laughs> yeah. Like I was trying to think of it today. My brother goes, how many bears have you killed? And I'm like, eh, 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 I don't know now. <laughs> but the, uh, I, I've been able to kill multiple bears per year. Sometimes uh, three or four in one year mm. i've been able to go and hunt in places like british columbia yeah uh, alaska as well as the lower 48 mm -hmm. from you know from washington oregon montana wyoming idaho uh all the states uh, up west and then um like i said in canada as well so when i was hunting bears on that trip i killed a bear that uh, squared over seven feet and had a 21 inch skull. Man. So that was my first black bear. And it's my biggest black bear today. Yeah, that is a massive black bear. That's a tank. Yeah. yeah. So I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> complete just luck. And <clears throat> which annoys me to this day when people have never done it before, go out and they kill what people have been trying to kill for. Yeah. Right. Right. Eons, right. You know, Yo. it yep. seems to be like, Sometimes that's the way it goes, but right. we killed a, I killed a giant. And ever since that moment, mm. I've been on a bear hunt every year after that. Like once I had a taste and saw it and experienced it, it was just unbelievable. Yeah. It was unbelievable. And the way it felt to be in the, in the hills in Southeast Alaska and to see these bears come out and pop out on a, on a road or on a beach or something it was just such a rush mm. and it was so intimidating it was so they were big you yeah. know like yeah. grizzly bear size <laughs> yeah. big yeah. and so to see one and to be within 50 yards of it uh it was just uh awe-inspiring and at the time i didn't know much about bear behavior much about bears and so there was this I assumed they were all going to eat me, you know, at the same time. Like I had this really infant like idea of bears, like a real, like your city slicker type, you know, right. experience right. type of, of view of bears. Uh, and so I lit literally when I had to track my bear and I had to go out and follow a blood trail, I was, I was 
my heart was pounding. I thought, you know, I'm going to come <laughs> on the spare. It's going to maul me to death. Like I had genuine, like uh, boogeyman fears of, of bears while I was doing it. But there was something about it that I wanted to prove to myself that I could do. Mm. In fact, uh, my first one, I stalked this bear before I killed the other one, uh, which was on the last day of the hunt. I, I had gotten close and I was determined to do it with a bow until the last day. And so I got so close so many times and there was a big, beautiful black bear in a green meadow. And there was one giant tree between, it's kind of in between myself and the bear. And so I crept up to the, to the tree and then I was going to lean out and shoot the bear. Yeah. And so I got to the tree and I leaned out and I was going to shoot the bear. And when I leaned out, the bear was like six feet away, like <laughs> right there, I could smack it on the ass. And so I leaned back from the tree and I just started to freak out. Like my, I was like, you're like, cause when he went, when I crept between him and I kept the tree between us and snuck up to that tree, he seemed like he was a good hundred yards mm. beyond that tree. Yeah. And uh, I never knew where he was the whole time I got up to the tree. So when I crept around it, I was looking beyond. And when he was right there, I scared the crap out of me and his, <laughs> its butt was to me. I leaned back for the tree and I just started backing away from the tree as far as <laughs> fast as I could. And I got about 20 or 30 yards from the tree. Now I got some distance between me and this bear. And then I started ma making my way around at full draw. I was at full draw the whole time. And I was just kind of walking <laughs> sideways to try to get the shot. And uh, right about then the wind switched and that bear just picked its head up and just bolted mm. and i never got the arrow off but that rush that excitement that that feel being that close to a bear i just wanted to learn more about him i just wanted mm. to do it and so yeah. from that day on and then i shot a giant on the last day uh i just i'm like i did not want to go all the way to to the island do the southeast alaska alaskan hunt and come home empty and everyone in our group had shot one so I put the bow down and I got a rifle out and I shot one on that last day. Man. Very nice. Went home. And then after that, I started going back to Prince of Wales every year. Yeah. And did that for, I think I've been there like five times. And then, mm, yeah. then I was going there for Blacktail as well in mm -hmm. August doing that. And uh, the island just became my annual retreat until they changed the regulations and the tags and they started right. to overshoot them on the sows on rivers and all kinds yeah, of issues right. that came along with that. Right. Yep. So then I started to go like, I still want to hunt bears, but I'm not getting tags and opportunities there the way that they've changed it to a draw. Right. And uh, so that's when I started hunting in Canada a little more, mm. killed some bow bears with my bows up in Canada, which was great spot and stock. It was awesome. Yeah. And then, then I started uh, hunting down here with different people and I got on a hunt with Ryan Lampers mm -hmm. and it was the first time I had ever hunted high mountain bears. Like I'd always hunted mm. coastal, big open areas, BC farmlands, this kind of big black bear type country. Yeah. But I never hunted like Rocky mountain black bear. Right. Mm. And, um, and so hence I had killed black color phase bears that's all there is in a lot of these places right there was there's no chocolates there's no reds there's no blondes there's there's nothing quite unique it's black black and more black yeah so 
when I got in the mountains and I saw so many color phases and so many right. bears and the behavior and the beauty of the spring and all, I was addicted and it's just been that way ever since. All right, folks, I want to take a second to tell you about a product I found this last year and have absolutely fallen in love with. It's the Stealthy Hunter rifle cover. I used one on a recent black-tailed deer hunt in southeast Alaska, and it did a great job of keeping the salt water and debris out of the action and also protecting the scope on my rifle from getting knocked around and damaged. On top of all that, the carry handle made it easy to transport the rifle to and from the boat during the hunt. When it got wet from rain and ocean spray, I hung it up at camp to dry at night and it was always dry in 20 minutes or less. Stealthy Hunter also offers a wide variety of nutritional supplements for the outdoorsman such as CBD oils, essential vitamins, turmeric, and bone broth. In the gear shop, they also have a lightweight first aid kit, glassing pads, and stuff sacks to organize your gear and your pack. Go check out Stealthy Hunter's website and use the code THENORTHERNHUNTER at checkout to get a discount on your order today. All Stealthy Hunter equipment is proudly made in the USA. Now, in our interview a couple weeks ago with Ryan Lampers, um, previous to this show, I want to circle back to what you just mentioned about going on a hunt with Ryan. <laughs> I was thinking the because same thing. Because <laughs> the way Ryan <laughs> describes your first mountain black bear hunt with him was that you invited yourself <laughs> on that hunt. So I'd He's like such, to circle back to that is, and just uh, just tell us how that transpired. Yeah, how how is, would I go about inviting myself on a hunt with Ryan Lampers? <laughs> Ryan Lampers is a liar. That's the first thing you need to know. A liar. Uh, actually it's so funny because I had met Ryan years before at a train to hunt event uh -huh. and he's a monster and it was awesome to get to know him. And I filmed him and I got him to come on the podcast with me, which was a whole day affair from morning till dark. Uh, I was like, you should just come on and you know, I'm not going to take no for an answer and, you know, <laughs> I, and all this. And I've heard that filming Ryan years ago was about like trying to film Bigfoot. It just wouldn't happen. It wouldn't happen. Yeah. No. And when, <laughs> when he, I, when he came and he sat down to do the podcast, his wife is like, this is, this is a miracle. I can't believe uh, he's going to do a podcast with you. He doesn't do this kind of stuff. How'd you talk him into it? I need to know the secrets and stuff. And I was like, I don't know. I just don't quit. You know, um, my mom is a pretty intro, like hardcore introvert. I have some siblings that are that way. I kind of uh, like introverted people. And I'm patient with them. And, um, and Ryan had a lot of respect for me before this. And then as we got to know each other, I didn't know it cause he'll never tell you, mm. uh, but, but he did, and, and, you know, he respected my, what I was about, you know? Um, so he came on that podcast and that, that began our friendship, um, hanging out together. Mm. And I just really loved, uh, Ryan. His yeah. work ethic, his skill, his, his demeanor. And, uh, you might think when you meet Ryan, you know, that he doesn't like you very much, but I knew that that was, couldn't be true. <laughs> it had to be just his introverted personality. So where other people are put off, I was undaunted. And so, uh, over time we just continued to hang out and be friends uh, a little bit here and there. And then what happened was, <clears throat> 
um, he had decided somewhere because he didn't tell me, but he had sort of decided he was going to quit his job and try to do his podcast with his wife on Harvest Health kind of full time. And mm. she had been pushing for him to <clears throat> share himself more and to, and to be, you know, to do what I was doing, basically. Like, she's like, you have the talent and the skill and you're a remarkable person. You just need to put yourself out there. Mm. And, um, and so he had done a hunt with his friend, uh, Jeff Lusk, uh, and they had filmed us a, a year of hunts. Um, and they had a little bit of partnership from a few brands that kind of helped paid a little bit for some of this. And they went out and they did a, a series of hunts and filmed it, but it never left the hard drive, mm. you know, and yeah. I understand why it's really tough to do. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's not easy. And so the following year they had, I guess they had gotten another cameraman and they were going to go back into this bear area and Ryan is sitting there and he's like, he calls me on the phone and he says, yeah, I'm, I'm heading to go on this bear hunt. And, and I, um, it's like, I have, I have this, uh, guy who was going to be there and he was going to film it, but he's bailing out on us. So now we're kind of screwed. Cause we need a, we need a guy that can hunt, that can run a camera, you know, even edit somebody who can like keep up is willing to go and wants to go where we can go and that we can trust and keeps a secret. Like we need that guy. Mm. You know, mm. And he's like, he throws that out there and I'm just thinking, Hmm, who could do that? Could do that? <laughs> and, and so I couldn't figure it out. And so he called another day or two later and he's like, do you got any, idea? and he brings it up again. And I think the third time that we had the conversation, I started to think, wait a minute, He's inviting me to go hunting with him. That's what this is. This is an invite. This is how Ryan Lambers invites people to do something with him. So I said, wait a minute. Are you inviting me to go on this hunt? And he's like, oh, I mean, I'm, I'm not doing anything. I mean, if you want to go, it's, it's an option. If you, if you want to, and I'm like, well, consider me in, I'm going, you know? And so yeah. you can say I invited myself because he set it up that way. But the truth was the man was fishing for me to volunteer myself. And, uh, so that's from, so, from an introvert. Happened? I'm very introverted myself, actually. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know if people can tell by the way I talk on the show, but this, when I'm on the mic, this is probably the most I talk. Yeah. Ever. Really. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yep. That is a very picture accurate. perfect, accurate, <laughs> introvert way to invite somebody to do something. <laughs> hey, what, what would you think about this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, right. Well, it was great. We did the hunt and he, uh, man, that man has killed some bears mm -hmm. in a totally different style and sort of place than I had. You know, you're dealing with the snow melt, the springtime. You're, you're not hunting on rivers. You're, you know, near the ocean or on the coastlines eating mussels or anything like that. It's like a, it was a whole different thing. Yeah. And, and we covered some miles and saw some beautiful places. And, uh, and we just, we, every year since, it seems like we have just some phenomenal experiences in mm. some amazing yeah. places. And I just think, if you were to say you could do one hunt a year, like one species only, it's like, it's hard to turn away from spring black bear because 
you know, it's like tags are, are, are plentiful. Mm -hmm. The locations they live is phenomenal. Yeah. The, the spring is such a beautiful time to be hitting the mountains. You just see it just go from sort of snow melt and mud and, and, and no leaves to just exploding with life over the course of two to three weeks. So, yeah. I know we've talked about that on our show before, just about the importance of predator control and the the, the population of bears, even in the low 48, like where you guys are hunting, I'm sure is very underrated and people don't realize just how many bears there are out there mm-hmm. and the impact that they have on the ungulate species. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, down there, it's going to be your deer species and your elk. And uh, I'm sure in some areas that the Shiras moose that you guys have down there, uh, but up here it's moose and caribou, and uh, you know, in, in some areas they can put uh, they can put a hurting on a few different sheep, and in, in some areas, and uh, so th- th- just just kind of touch on that a little bit and the importance of bear hunting and that predator control mindset that you guys have because you guys mm-hmm. don't short yourself on time for ungulate species in the fall. And uh, y- you you carve out extra time on top of your ungulate species hunts in the fall to go out in the springtime and hunt these bears. So d- just talk about why you view that as important and why you've uh, mm-hmm. why you've chosen to do it year after year after year. I would I would argue that uh, I would say that the main reason, one of the biggest reasons why. Um, there's so many reasons for why somebody hunts. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's different for all. It's there. There's not just one thing. Predator management is one piece of a whole suite of reasons that motivate me. I think I heard Stephen Ranella say one time, um, "I hunt for the food, I hunt for the adventure, um, and I and I hunt for uh, for conservation, mm-hmm. right?" And and I and there's all this, and he's like. And if you were to pull, you know, especially the food part out of it, yeah, he's mm-hmm. like, I don't think I would hunt. If the food right. part was just removed, I, I just don't know that I'd have the will or the drive to go out and hunt. And I have felt that way for years. Like, um, I need like a reason. I need purpose. I need meaning for when I go out and I and I hunt. And when I hunt bears, mm-hmm. I I want to pull out some of those bears that are really hurting the, the, the calving situation. Some of those bears are so skilled oh, yeah. at yeah. tracking like a cow in heat. Yeah. We've watched them track mm-hmm. her. She, he knows that she's about to give birth and just waits for her to start to give birth and then runs in and just grabs it. And what can yeah. the cow do? Like <clears throat> once they're on the scent of a birthing that they're just like a bird dog, that, that elk ain't getting away. Yeah, right. You know, yeah. it's just that's why they all birth them at the same time. So the bears just can't kill them. Like they kill half, but they can't eat that many right. all at once. Right. You know, if they distributed the birth out, mm. you'd be screwed. But yeah. the whole point is that so many X, X amount are just getting sacrificed every year. Yeah, right. It's what nature does. And so when you look at uh, bear hunting for me, yes, there is uh when we pull an old mature boar out of a, a space, we're saving other bears. We're, we seem to be increasing the overall bear population. At least that's what we've seen. And uh, I do believe that those really smart and older and experienced ones are the ones that are killing more 
calves and stuff. Then you're middle-aged and young, you know, your, your middle medium bears and younger, they're eating grass. They're eating yeah, bugs. Right. They're eating mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Yeah. Or, or scavenging so, the leftovers. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I think it is important, I, you know, in certain areas, I think that uh, a certain bear, you know, they'll say like there are mountain lions that have a one trick, they're a one trick pony. They can kill porcupines like crazy. Mm-hmm. Like that is their thing. <laughs> yeah. And a certain mountain lion will have a taste for it and a skill for it yeah. and can a def- and can, uh, you know, skillfully kill that particular species or animal. And another cat could come along and try it and just, get wrecked and never try it again. Yeah, and so right. you have specialists yep. you have the same thing in the bear. They're super smart. They're as, they're often as unique as individual people yep. and what they like to eat, where they like, when they like yep. to sleep, how they like to move, they have, they have personalities mm-hmm. and you have specialists and some of these bears are skilled at killing other bears and have that drive to kill the cubs and anything it can find. Other ones are like, yeah, I need, I need deer fawns, mm-hmm. right? Other ones are like good at getting at nests and eggs and whatever. Like they, they have their skill sets, but I just think that when you can go into certain areas and you can kill a mature boar, it takes years for another bear to come in and take its place right. to be that age. Yeah. And I do think you're extending the, the life of the population of, uh, or you're increasing a little bit of that population of the, of the, of the deer and the elk in the region. But yeah. I don't know that, I mean, we, we often hunt areas, Dalton, where nobody goes. Yeah. And I, some of these bears are 18 years old, 20 something years old that we harvest. Wow. No one's killed them in that window of time. Right. And it's like, how much were they? I don't know. The deer and the elk are doing fine. How yeah. much is the bear impacting the population? It's, it's really hard to say. Mm. Um, yeah. It's- so I don't, I'm not purely motivated to hunt bears to reduce uh i think there's other things that are more impactful on ungulate populations than weather primarily especially yeah but more than bears are right so i just know this there's a lot of them yeah (laughs) they they taste awesome right (laughs) yeah and the biologists are managing the resource to maximize it yeah they're saying hey here you can kill two and here you can kill one and here you can kill one and in here you can kill one and we have leftover tags. So come one, come all. And I can go out, hit the mountains and I can stack up my favorite game meat in this place, this place, and this place and come home with enough canned bear meat and bear hams and smoked hams that I can eat with my kids and my wife for the next 12 months, Mm. which is never lasts that long. We go through two to three bears in six months yeah 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 that sounds about right yeah and and, you know i think we might have a a slightly higher problem with the the bear predation up here than than some regions will just due to the sheer density i I know for a fact i i've spoken to um people that are managing kind of the recovery of of different struggling herds throughout the the state Mm -hmm. and i know that one was the muskox up, yeah. up north yep. and they had found that a big contributing factor to the drop in the population of the muskox herd was actually grizzly bears which yeah. kind of like you said were some of them are one trick ponies they found it wasn't all grizzly bears but right. there were there were several in the area right that had just learned that 
this yeah. time of year, those muskox are dropping calves and that's an easy meal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so they went up there and through the the motivation of management, took those particular bears out of the equation. Yeah. And suddenly the herd starts coming back. Yeah. Uh, there was another study done. It was a while ago, but it was about grizzlies down with the Nilchina herd for caribou. Yeah. And actually I was uh, reading this on our sponsor page, uh, Beta 907. They, were, they had posted something about it and that kind of piqued my interest. But there was a a study done where grizzlies were taking on average over the course of, I think I want to say it was a three-year study, but on average 34 calves per year, per bear per year. Wow. In that region. And, wow. and that yeah. was one of the big reasons for the, for mm. the takedown. So, yeah. But I also really agree with what you're saying. Bears taste awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that is a huge motivating factor for my spring hunting. Yeah. It's, I, I love bear sausage and bear, yeah. bear roasts. I have no, this is something that I, I've never understood it. I'm not, um, wired this way. You know, I, I, uh, love, uh, meat eater. And I remember the show where they're like down South and they killed monkeys and he, and they're like, I couldn't really, I don't want to eat it. Cause it looks like a person, Yeah, mm. you know, uh, yep. um, he was talking one time about a, um, he had a legal tag where he could have shot a Wolverine, but he's like, man, I just felt like there's not very many of them and I really didn't want to. And so I decided not to, and you know, hmm. I'm not wired that way, folks. No, Like I am maybe, um, I, I feel like if you're okay with killing within the legal system and the tag allocations, mm-hmm. deer, elk, moose, why should I give? cats and wolves and bears a free pass right yeah they're all created equal in my eyes there is no like hierarchy of well these get hunted and these don't it's all (laughs) all of it is the same how can you sit there and say yeah i get it kill this species over here but you this one's off limits i don't understand it it doesn't compute in my head never did Mm. i was a missionary in japan for two years one thing i appreciate about the asian culture they'll eat anything. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's right. It's like, it's like protein. There's no emotions there. It's like, right, dude. And, and I think like, it's weird the way that we act like you're sitting there talking to some Koreans and they eat dog and they're like, it's great. It's great. And I'm Mm -hmm. thinking I'll try it. I don't care. I do not have these sort of sentimental attachments to certain animals, like a horse. I ate so much horse in Japan. (laughs) I don't get it. I don't get it. Well, it's and, like, and it's not people, my horse. It's not the one I rode and grew up with. I ate a different one. Like, yeah. I don't know. I don't have this. Well, and I've heard the I argument. Don't have this. I've heard the argument from people that, that the reason they don't want to hunt wolves and coyotes and stuff like yeah. that, yeah, it just looks too much like my dog. And you know, oh, it looks too yeah. much like a house yeah, pet. I've, I've heard that way I don't too get much. it. But it's not. I do <laughs> like, not it's get not. it. That, that, that logic, that sentimentality, that softness, let me call it that. I just don't relate to it mm-hmm. at all. Um, you know, and I love my dog, right? But, but uh, th- this wolf isn't isn't my dog. Yeah, I don't love your dog. Your dog comes in my yard. I might shoot your dog. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I second that motion. I, yeah. I don't understand how everyone doesn't agree with me. No, I just don't get it. Well, nobody on this podcast, Brian. We're all on the same yeah. page. I, yeah. Okay, good. Easily. Good. I grew up trapping with my dad, and it was funny because my dad had a trapping partner. And uh, they shared trapping cabins and stuff. And we'd go out every every weekend, every other weekend. We were, if it was wintertime, we were out running the trap line. 
And um, my dad's uh, buddy's wife was mm -hmm. like, she like worshiped wolves. Now, yeah. I don't worship wolves. Mm. My dad doesn't worship wolves. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. But like, and, and she was okay <laughs> with my dad trapping them, but she did not want her husband to kill a wolf. It was just like, don't do it. You better not kill him. Absolutely mm -hmm. not. Now, for folks listening right now, you can't see this, but Mariah is sitting in his <laughs> office chair with two wolf hides that he has <laughs> shot himself. Oh, nice. <laughs> and he's, he's sitting on his wolf hides. Yeah, so. Yeah. so I was inspired from when we talked to you another time um, with your bears. And I thought, you know, yes. I like that idea. I'm going to get bring, bring I like your, in and show them off. I, a little bit. I like your wolf throne. I love it. <laughs> I think it's great. Uh, yeah, I think that um, when it comes to, I think we should do what we can to support our wildlife uh, officials, our wildlife biologists, each state. They go through the effort of figuring out what the quotas are, how many we have available to hunt, what the tags should be. And I think we should rely and we should lean on what they have to say mm, Yeah, and actually yeah. do our best to... Yeah. Uh, you know, meet those needs. And if there's a quota for the amount of bears they want to take, have taken out of an area or whatever, uh, for wolves, there's a balance they're trying to achieve. And we should pluck those resources out and leverage them to the best of our abilities. If that's for the fur, if that's for the hide, if that's mm. for whatever that is, do it. It's, right. it's, yeah, it's yeah. a resource that yeah. is out there. We should leverage it best we can. And I do, I do believe that modern society has this attitude toward that sort of activity, thinking that it's unworthy of the modern man. And I think that, that there needs to be more education uh, and more representation for mm, right. the value of it. Right. And that's why we hunt a lot and we film lots of bear meat eating shows and canning. And yeah. we talk about the bear meat as much as we do, because look, I don't buy beef. I don't need mm, to get yeah, this this right. stuff down here. I don't yeah. support mass uh, feedlots and monocultural crops that are that are taking over an entire section of a state. You know, it's all yeah. corn. Like we don't. I, I don't contribute to much of that I, yeah. I, as a as a human mm. in the modern world. I, there's some, but man, I really have. I really go out and I, and I'm able to hunt bears and, and elk and deer and moose and caribou, bring that stuff home, leverage the bear fat, which yeah. is for me very important. Yep. And I'm able to show that to people. And that's a renewable resource. We kill those bears, we take yeah. them out, we eat them, we live on them. Right and then now. we still do things to help the bear population overall do well. And then we manage how many elk and deer we take. So everybody gets a turn. We don't take too much. And it's a brilliant wonderful system yeah. and and uh so i i think you know making sure that everybody i i try with our bear hunts to show that we care about the hide uh sometimes we leave them because we're really mm -hmm. remote but we but the meat always comes out yep. and i think that's that's important but you'll you'll be shocked like how many people are mad at us if we leave a, a fur behind a bear fur it's like they don't care if you leave a deer fur behind. Nobody says a word. <laughs> they lose their ever living mind if you pack out a hundred pounds of meat and you leave a hide. Right. It's like, right. how could you? It's like, yeah. well, the meat is really important, and 
Yeah. So. I just didn't need this fur, you know? Yeah. I have a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, it's funny, some states, it's illegal to leave the fur, but legal to ditch the meat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Alaska kind of stop. Alaska kind of goes back and forth depending on the time of year and and where you're at in the state and everything Mm -hmm. like that. It's depending on where you're hunting, you'll you'll find different regs for each of them. But yeah, yeah, it's a certain bears. I mean, like grizzlies. Yeah, I've heard of some people eating grizzlies, but I've I've eaten coastal brown bear twice, and I can. Mm -hmm with great confidence say that that will be the only two times I ever tried coastal brown bear. <laughs> um, but what about an inland grizzly bear? Cause I talked to a number of people and I've, I ate some of mine. Yeah. It was good. I I've eaten it. inland grizzly bear a couple times mm-hmm. and I know Mariah has too, and I didn't have any issue with it. No, it's definitely yeah. a tougher meat depending yeah. on the time of year, the later in it the year, tough. they're getting yeah. to a lot more depending mm-hmm. on the time of year, like later in the summer, they're getting to a lot more rotten meat. Whereas an earlier grizzly can taste better. And l- yeah. like a nice late fall grizzly bear that's just been eating a lot of blueberries. Yeah. Ooh, you know, that's, yeah. that's a great grizzly bear to eat. No problems yeah. there yeah. on my part. So I, I know we talked about on your podcast. Uh, I'm sure by this time uh, that'll be probably out. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about um, the difficulty of some of these mountain bear hunts mm. and kind of how people don't look at bear hunting as a mountain hunt when it very well can be and the reality is if you go out you load up your backpack with all of your uh, let's just say with air quotes sheep hunting gear Mm -hmm. right you're going out for a mountain hunt you've got lightweight stuff (laughs) you're backpacking in you're not on a motorized access area you're on foot and you have seven to ten days blocked off for this hunt that's how you guys are doing a lot of these bear hunts in the mountains. Um, so talk a little bit about your methodology, um, just kind of how you formulate a bear hunt plan, how long you like to be out there, um, mm-hmm. what the weather is that time of year when you guys are hunting, mm-hmm. and kind of what some of the challenges are um, okay. that, may, that maybe some folks aren't familiar with with mountain bear hunting. So um, usually... You know, pack with 10 days of food or 10 days, 10 or 11 days of food, all of our camping gear, our hunting equipment, all that kind of stuff. We're we're somewhere in the ballpark of 70 pounds of gear mm. heading in, yeah. right? And <clears throat> um, of that 70 pounds, uh, it's about two to two and a half pounds a day of food. So for me, it tends to be about 25 pounds of food mm-hmm. uh, and, and electrolytes and all that kind of stuff for a 10 or 11 day backcountry excursion. Okay. So my pack is somewhere between 45 and 50 pounds with, without the food, minus the food. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, and uh, it can be lighter at times, but when you're talking about your rifle, your bullets, your binos, your optics, you know, it can get up there. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. But um, we're pretty well conditioned to, that 70 pounds, 65 pound load, 70 pound. And we know that every day it's going to get two to two and a half pounds lighter. Yep. So when it comes time to pack out, when we kill a bear, we've gone from, you know, whatever our packing weight was, we're down to about 40, 45 pounds. And then you add a bear on top of that. And a bear adds a bear boned out with, um, the fur, the hide in the skull, 
these mountain bears are not giant. Okay. Mm. You're not dealing with, you know, a six foot mountain bear is big, you know, mm -hmm. that's pretty right. dang big. Um, you know, five and a half feet is pretty common and you'll get them with big bodies, big heads, you know, but they're just not like other bears in other regions. They mm -hmm. just, they can't be, Yeah, they're eating huckleberries and blueberries and stuff at these yeah. high mountain elevations. They're eating tubers and flowers and plants and there's not fish to really go right. at. Yeah, there's right. not, well, they, they're eating the occasional fawn and deer, but some, uh, in these mountain areas, some, most of their grub, most of their protein is from bugs. Mm, and they're right. more of a bug eater and a plant eater up yep. in these regions. So do you makes see them, them flipping meat. rocks a lot and digging out on, yes. underneath the old stumps? Yeah. And yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. That, that so, sounds pretty similar to, to interior Alaska. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're five and a half to six foot is pretty. I think they say like three grubs, three little worms. Uh, larva grubs are about the same amount of protein as a hamburger. So, so a lot wow. more hamburger, a lot more, uh, protein in those little, those little larvae than you I, realize. I wouldn't yeah. have expected that at all. No. So when are you and Ryan going to start eating grubs in the hills then? So you start freeze, <laughs> you, if you freeze dry those grubs, you'll be yeah. really yeah. packing oh, like, yeah. don't, I have don't, a bag of meal worms. I give food. those chickens. They're perfect yeah. like this. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> Sprinkle uh, a little bit in the mountain house and yeah, call it. yeah seriously. <laughs> um, I'm actually a tough guy. Like I'll eat whatever. I lived in uh, some. I've eaten some crazy things, but I do draw the line at mealworms. But anyway, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I think um, you know. So that's our our load uh, packing in, and then the bear deboned, um, and with the hide in the skull. We're typically around, I want to say, you know, our pack out weight is about 110 to 115 pounds. Yeah. So yeah. it's a load. I mean, it's, it's a <laughs> oh, grind. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but you're, you're talking about a 45 pound pack and then the rest of that load is 70 pounds mm -hmm. or something in there. Yeah. Um, and uh, we try to shave more and more off as we can, but um, it's similar to a mule deer yeah. buck, yeah. which we also do in one load. It's hell, usually 120 pounds, mm. you know. And we pack out, um, you know, we pack out uh, the the get our base weight again down to 40 so pounds or so. We get rid of all the food. We're on our way out. Yeah. And you're now packing the, we leave the hide with the deer. You know, we never, we almost, we never pack out a cape. You know, we year them out mostly everything. Yeah. yeah. So we got the skull and the horns and then we got the deboned meat and we can get that thing down to 110 pounds as well. So we're somewhere in that ballpark, um, which is doable for a deer or, or an elk. When you guys laugh? <laughs> well, we've got this thing. Yeah. <laughs> It, it, I think we titled. Brian. I think we titled a whole episode we, we after it. Actually, yeah. yeah. So several <laughs> weeks ago, we had an episode titled "Deer Don't Have Horns." Oh, that was oh, months oh, and oh, months yeah, ago. Yeah. <laughs> it was months ago. But yeah. Yeah. Oh, you're gonna have a hard time getting me to not not say horns. It's all right. Uh, I, I hear so many folks say it. I, I've I've, I've kind of just had to let that one go over time. But, yeah, it, it's just funny. Uh, so yeah. j j just kind of a quick question here. So how often are you guys having to deal with swollen creeks in the springtime? Every time. Yeah. Yeah. Every time. 
So how do you um, deal with that? Because I mean, just for folks that aren't familiar with that, I mean, we're, we're all um, we're all um, soakingly wet, familiar with this situation. <laughs> yeah. Um, about sure. going into an area, and you can maybe walk across it on day one, but then on day seven or ten on the way out, tell us what that might look like. <laughs> yeah, it could be ankle deep on the way in, and then when you come out, it's a, tor- a raging torrent that is yeah. over your head. Yeah. So. Um, and the problem with Alaska is there's no, uh, you know, it, it seems to never calm down anywhere along the stretch. Like there's no (laughs) where to shoot across, right? you know, it's like you're shooting the rapids and then Mm. you're hoping you can land on the other side and not be dead. (laughs) Yeah. So (laughs) the glacial runoff, it's, it's a whole different ball game. Uh, um, so although I've seen some of these guys like go through those on a cam end of defender with a snorkel mm-hmm. and come out the other side. And I thought for sure they were going to, it was over. <laughs> and I was like, wow, that's a whole lot easier than what I've been doing. You know, when we were crossing with, uh, trekking poles and, uh, and waiters, you know, yeah. and a few spots and it was sketchy. Um, and, uh, but we use rafts. We typically leverage the, uh, the alpaca pack rafts. We've been using them for a long time. Yeah. Mm. And, um, they're five. We use the caribou almost for exclusively 90% of our, our trips, especially in the spring, we're using the caribou. It's really thin material. Uh, yeah. it's not as heavy duty as like the mule, but you know, we have been able to, cause weight's such a big deal. Yeah. You know, there's a difference, there's a seven pound mule or a five pound caribou yeah. can we do all the same things with the caribou that we've done with the mule that's the question can yeah. we can we really do it and the answer is so far yes everything we've been a- we've been able to do the same but the caribou does get a few more holes in it more easily here and there which you have to patch and handle as they come you know you hit a little beaver uh yeah. You call it uh stick poking mm-hmm. out of the reeds and stuff yeah. and yep. pop, you know, and it's like, it's always a slower leak. And then we go through and we patch it up and mm. we're back on the, back on the river. Um, but we're just much more careful with the rafts now too, but the five pound caribou, that's kind of ideal for us in the spring. And usually what happens, we'll bring Choda hippie waiters. Yep. yep. And we will simply, and some Crocs maybe, mm-hmm. and then we'll just throw the waders on the Crocs and we'll cross some of these rivers that we can. Cause some of these, some of these spots we got to cross, you're crossing six of them, six little tributaries into the main river mm-hmm. in the first five miles. Yeah, It's like constant. Well, when that happens, those chip Choda hippie waders are nice because the water is cold and you can, mm-hmm. you can quickly get across throw your boots back on, you keep your socks on the whole time. So yeah. you can just lace up your boots and go. Right. And it's efficient. Um, and then um, we bring the rafts and when the water gets dangerously deep and you can't cross safely in waders, that's when we pull out the rafts, we yeah. blow up those rafts and we find a safe place to shoot across. Usually it's where the tributary runs into the main drainage mm. uh main river and when that happens you know it's kind of like you're kind of hitting the main right. river and and scooting around the tributary because that tributary is just coming in hot yeah and uh 
usually on some of those spots, it's kind of sketchy because you got to you got to hit your exit point because if you don't, you're going to die in a log jam <laughs> 30 yeah. yards below. <laughs> right. So, right. Um, it's it can be dangerous, very dangerous. I think the most dangerous thing we probably do is, you know, falling off a cliff or a ledge and the water, you know, drowning in a river or something. Right. So those those are never to be taken lightly, something to be very serious about and careful with. Yeah. And uh, do yeah, you guys bring PFDs for crossing water or no? We we uh, bring PFDs for long floats, but not for crossing rivers. Yeah. yeah, no, it's just man for those little jaunts and stuff. Um, it's the weight penalty, so yeah. mm-hmm. we typically leave that behind, and yeah. uh, we we use it though when when we have a twenty mile float. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been using the PFDs now and we get rid of the, uh, we've also changed the boat as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we're going to be floating a long ways, the, the mule is a nice boat. It works really well. It's only seven pounds, mm. um, or the hunter, which is 10 pounds and where you're not, where other guys aren't carrying as much camera gear and stuff as we are. So I have 20 pounds of camera gear, 18 pounds of camera gear. So Everybody else, take your kit and add 18 pounds. That's what I'm going to do. And so it, it, it's a problem for me. You know, I, I need to, I need that caribou to be, I need the five pound boat, not the seven pound, not the 10 pound. I need as few pounds as I can get. So we're, we're fortunate in that we have a lot of hyper, hyper lightweight gear, including our weather be rifles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which are like right around six pounds with scopes, you know? Yeah. So you're talking, we're able to shave, you know, some good, Dyneema Cuban fiber materials. We're using those. We got yeah. lightweights, a lot of lightweight stuff. So, um, but definitely, I think for those longer floats, the caribou, Ryan has done it. Ryan has floated 20 miles in a caribou full with two bears and all his gear. Mm. And the thing's not rated. It's, he was at least 100 pounds over the weight <laughs> requirement. Uh, wow. Yeah. The thing was half sinking. And, uh, <laughs> but, you know, We've we've uh, managed to do it. It can do it. It's an impressive little boat. But yeah. I would recommend the mule if you had to do a lot of packing. But if you really want to just have a nice, safe, like heavy, big boat, the hunter's really nice. Yeah. And then uh, the forager is what we're using this year for. Uh, we have some moose hunts planned in Alaska, and those were, we plan to do quite a bit of floating, and we're going to bring on the foragers this time. Yeah. No, I I, I think you'll really <laughs> like those foragers. I, I have. A little bit of experience with the forager and it's it's an impressive little boat that's mm. yeah it's impressive how much weight you can put in there and uh <laughs> it, it does just fine but you know I, i've i've always had a hard time trusting a boat to take on that much weight when if you oh, don't yeah. tie it down on a gravel bar it'll blow away in the wind <laughs> yeah i believe me and yeah, I, I, I from personal viewing at that is exactly what happens if you don't mm. tie them down <laughs> <laughs> that was a new thing for us. I didn't tie my boat down and it came back and it had a whole bunch of holes in it because yeah. it, blew, oh, it was yeah. tied. It was tied with one rope, yeah. but it wasn't, but it would wasn't, tumble. It wasn't yeah. secure. So it was just whipping in the wind yeah. on the Alaskan Man. beach and it had like three holes in it and we got back and it was just like a kite on a stick, you know, like on yeah. a tree. And I was like, yeah. dang it. So yeah, right. um, yeah, you learn as you go. But I would say the, uh, I, I took that hunter and I filled it with two caribou, all the meat 
uh, bone in, fill the pontoons and all my gear, everything into the hunter. So I put two caribou and all my stuff and I floated the whole way out in that miserable little bobber. And it was, uh, <laughs> while Ryan and, and, uh, Chris were in the big, heavy giant boats. Right. Um, it was maneuverable, but I was wet the whole time. Yeah. It was coming. I had waders on, but I was cold. And did um, you have the self bailing model in that one, Brian? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Yeah. So yeah. it would just take on some water and come out. My feet were kind of perpetually in water. Yeah. They had so much stuff on the deck, yeah. Uh, but I was impressed, dude. I was hundred. I was way over the weight limit on that too, and yeah, it uh, it floated in Alaskan River for like <laughs> forty miles. So yeah. wow, well, that's pretty great. All right, folks. We all know that one of the most common mishaps in hunting is damage to your rifle scope. Last year, I found the solution to that problem with the Stealthy Hunter rifle cover. It wraps around your scope and action securely to protect it from getting knocked off of zero or even severely damaged. Stealthy Hunter also has a glassing pad and a wide variety of supplements for the outdoorsman, such as protein powder, CBD products, turmeric, and gut health supplements. They also make a lightweight trauma kit weighing in at just 14 ounces that includes everything you need and nothing you don't for all of your backcountry medical emergencies. To shop all of their equipment and supplements, Go to stealthyhunter.com and enter the discount code at checkout, The Northern Hunter, to save on your order today. All Stealthy Hunter equipment is proudly made in the USA. So let's uh, let's kind of run back into the methodology of bear hunting really quick. So let's okay. just let's just kind of paint a picture here, and I want to ask you for more questions. So we kind of hit on gear. We kind of talked about access and you're using boats a lot to get into these high mountain areas. Um, you get into a tributary, you kind of cross in, you get into a ridge where you just want to kind of run a ridge line and get way back into the middle of nowhere, right? So you get mm -hmm. there. What are you looking for to find some bears? How long do you spend at any given spot before you kind of move on? Um, mm -hmm. And then once you find bears at particular elevations that I'll let you you know, kind of decide what, what, uh, what elevations you find works, um, or early or late spring. And then, um, how you kind of adjust your game plan based off of what you're seeing there. Yep. So we, we are sort of in touch with local people, friends, uh, uh game people like, uh, officers. We're, we're kind of keeping track of snow levels. Mm -hmm. and trying to figure out where it's at and also the green up like where are the wildflowers where are they popping up where are the little right. green shoots where where's the stuff that these bears really like and we're sort of waiting to jet out to our spots when we start to hear about the flowers just starting to blossom mm -hmm. at these higher elevations yeah right on right as the snow is melting so a week or so after that snow is kind of receded then you start to get these little shoots and depending on the sun and we really want to be there kind of right in that window where everything is brown like nothing is green yet there there is no there's very little grass mm -hmm. but within two to three days those little spots there are certain bowls like you'll be in a region and let's say 
it stretches five miles up, up, up and down river. And then there's like five tributaries up there every mile or so. There's certain high elevation bowls that just green up before everything else. There's like two mm -hmm. or three bowls that turn green about five days to a week ahead of the whole rest of the area. Those little salad bowls, Ryan calls it chartreuse. Those yeah. little chartreuse green. I have come to love that term, Brian. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's such a fun word I to say. I say it's pretentious. It should be neon green. Okay. Uh, but he uh, he says chartreuse. We're looking for that salad bowl. And what we do is we're just trying to find where it's turning green because what we find is the bears conger concentrate there the first bears it's the only game in town it's the luscious mm, most tasty yeah. most desirable feed and when it seems like when they're coming out of their dens they're concentrated there at least the big big bears generally are yeah within a week or two after that you start to see them dispersed and they're kind of more randomly located in other green up areas right but usually you're talking the last week of april first couple of weeks of May. After that, the bears start to spend less and less time in the wide open, more and more time undercover because they don't need to leave. It's hot. They got mm -hmm. fur. The sun is out. It's getting warmer. Why go into the wide open and eat when I can just stay in the shade and eat and flip rocks and eat bugs and do my thing? Yeah, right. It just seems like we see them less and less as the season progresses. And yep. the closer you get to June, the worse the hunt gets, in our opinion, because it gets closer and closer to the rut. The, 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 the forest gets thicker and thicker with green. It gets dense. You can't see through it anymore. You can't spot game as easily. So mm -hmm. that's kind of how we manage the, the timing of it all. Well, and, and for people listening that are, that are just getting into this, the, I think we went over it in the episode that'll air just before this one. But uh, the reason that these bears congregate in, in areas like that is during hibernation, they're not actually sleeping. Right. They're in their right. caves. They're, they're lethargic mm -hmm. and they're slowed down and they, they go into a state where they're very, uh, what's the right way to put it? Constipated, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> because they're, uh, they're in their den the whole winter. So yeah. obviously you don't want to be doing that. And in Alaska, <laughs> we have a, uh, the, the term is blowing the plug. Yes. At the, at springtime, <laughs> right after hibernation. Right. Yeah. And, and so a big reason they're, they're, you want to look out for those those salad bowls, like you said, is that's the high fibrous foods. That's, right. That's what they're tackling first in order to get the fiber through their system and, and yeah. kind of get their push, digestion going again. Get the digestion going again. Yeah. And once that's cleared, then they're they're free to go to other protein sources. Right. So right, exactly. Yeah. Yep. So we tend to um look for the bears there. We climb to a high vantage point, you know, where we can glass. And then we start glassing that, that area for that, for bears mm. and we'll spend, uh, the day sometimes just glassing the whole, as far as we can see, uh, when we finish kind of looking in this area after a couple of hours, <clears throat> we'll pull out a spotter. We'll look two, three, four miles, five miles away. We'll look for, we're, we'll just look anywhere that we can put a spotter and see something, mm. see if we can find any sign of an animal, no matter how far away it is. And then if we don't see much or we see a bear really far away, we might decide, oh, let's move closer to that bear that we do know is over here. Mm. Bears in these mountain regions are not very, the, the bear population isn't very dense. They're very spread out. 
you know, it's not uncommon for us to go five or six days and not see a single bear. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. and I think a lot of guys that are new to it, they go out, they, ex- they expect to see, you know, a bear here and there, like you would see a deer, see a yeah. doe and a fawn and no, you see nothing. Yeah. <laughs> you see nothing. That's totally fine. Don't, don't lose hope. You know, you just got to move to the next basin. So we usually spend a day. If there's no bears there, there's no bears there. Like they don't hide, mm-hmm. especially in the spring. If it's a relatively open country, we have a pretty strong opinion that we're going to see a bear if he's there. Yeah. If he's out and about mm-hmm. and doing bear things, we're going to see him. So if he's not there, we're pretty quick to abandon that spot and hike another two miles to the next basin and look over there. Yeah, and right. hike another two miles to the next one and look over there. Another five miles to this one and look over there. Yeah. And we have our route already planned. So mm-hmm. before we leave, we know that this basin is here and this basin is here and this basin is here. And these are all meet the requirements or what we think will produce bears based on e-scouting and such. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mark Livesey's Treeline Academy e-scouting courses, they'll lay all that out for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're yep. so good. They're worth every penny. Um, mm-hmm. But you get out there and you can see those little basins and those little pockets. So we already know one time we came with this plan and Ryan wanted to hike my ass way out in the middle of nowhere. And we did. <laughs> then he kills this bear. And then he's like, we, and we, it was, it was the first bear we'd seen in five days. The only bear we'd seen and we killed it. And he's like, we got to get gone. Like we need to be in a different spot. This we, I'm glad we finally got a bear here, but, and it was his idea to hike 17 miles that day to the next spot where we did see another <laughs> bear and kill him that day, but it was 17 miles. There really wasn't much to look at between the, that spot and the next spot. There just wasn't, mm-hmm. it was just cliffs and rocks like the next and that wasn't the most brilliant plan you know like there was <laughs> it was like but he had to go in this area and see where we killed that bear and uh learn that no it's not great but it was so isolated and so far away from everything else mm. where yeah. all the other good hunting was yeah we ended up killing four bears on the trip but it was a hard hunt because we had picked a spot so far removed from all the rest of the little spots spots where we could jump and puddle you know and and go from place to place to place so you want to plan it out ahead of time yeah you know and really have a backup plan Mm -hmm. the next plan and the next plan and put miles on the boots yeah because if you want to kill bears big bears the only thing that i've found like we always talk about it uh climb higher and go farther like those are the two things that we kind of do it's like get higher see more and and then we go right back down and then we hike six miles over to this other spot where the, where we saw a dot far away. We have a hunch is probably a bear mm. and we kill. And I think a lot of times we'll go into an area and we'll come out and we'll know other people who were in there at the same time. They're like, Hey, we saw your teepee or we saw you guys back there. We glassed you and, and uh, we'll have killed four bears between the two of us. And we're like, how'd you do? And they're like, we didn't see a bear. Mm. What'd you do? They basically stayed in the same little Canyon the whole time. Right. And hoped that a bear would come and they just kept glassing and looking like, there's just no bears here. Yeah. Well, we hiked 15 miles that way, eight (laughs) miles that way, seven miles this way, you know, and it's just like, and you, it's kind of weird. It's like, we move, we move a lot. Mm. And, and, uh, and then glassing, I think, you know, we really have our glass on our face. 
from morning till dark. Right. It's a competition. Like we're trying to see who sees the most and it's, it's, we barely break to eat. We are Mm -hmm. constantly looking and looking and looking and looking. And I think that is, uh, I think people who don't really haven't really done that have no idea how much, what real glassing is like. Yeah. For my whole life, I thought I was glassing a lot. No, not till I met Ryan Lampers did I realize what real glassing was and how long. And that's the thing. We'll kill four bears, but they were the only fair four bears that we would have, that we wanted to kill. And it was, it took us 12 days, let's say to do it. So of hard, hard work in miles. So the, and often when we kill that bear, it's like, we just saw a glimpse. Yeah. It went over this ridge. Right. And it took us two days to get over there to confirm what we saw and then find that bear and kill it. Yeah, I mean that's the little clues, the little the little things it takes for us to to have that kind of success on a continual basis. Right, uh, it's it's the nature of mountain bear hunting. Just a quick question about your glass, because I, I I know you mentioned how important it is to spend a lot of time on your glass. So what do you like for binoculars? I know all the rage right now is the 15s and the 18s. Uh, I sheep hunted with a guy last year guiding. And he brought 18s, and I, and I think for for the doll sheep hunting and the kind of terrain that we were in, you know, relatively open, um, not necessarily a whole lot of cliff type of terrain uh, where you'd be looking under a half mile at really any given point. Most mm-hmm. of it was going to be over that one mile, one and a half mile mark. Um, mm-hmm. I experimented with them a little bit. I wasn't really a big fan of them. I've 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 experimented with twelves and fifteens as well. Mm. I think I see a spot for the fifteens, um, but personally, I still run ten by forty twos. I've I've got a I've got a pair of Leica range finding ten by forty twos that I I just have a hard time getting away from the tens because when I'm in on that final approach and I'm under the quarter mile mark. I like to be able to just keep it in my binoculars and get my ranges, but tell me what you, what you prefer for your binocular setup and then also your spotter as well. I would say that we are, um, 12s. We all run 12s. Okay. Um, pretty heavy into 12s. And then, um, we, the weight is an issue. Optics get a little heavy. Yeah. Um, but for bears, because bears are flashing signal lights, you know, like they just stand out, Mm -hmm. they're black dots. Yep. They seem to have like, they seem to shine. Like you just see a bear, you know, it's a bear. They have like Mm -hmm. an iridescent shine to them. Yeah. Yeah. And so we don't, we're not as picky about optics. Uh, for spring bears, we are for like a deer mule deer hunt late season. Yeah. Right. So we, we do, we run uh, 12 power and we typically get them stabilized, you know, on tripods and stuff. Okay. We glass for hours and hours and hours and hours. And it's typically 12 because it's that it's 10 is too small. 10 is not enough. Mm. And I could see how in Alaska, when I was there, how that would be fine because it's so thick and dense right and you only have visibility to so far right i I don't see where i need a 12. yeah we literally are in rocky mountain territory that we can see five miles away with you can see so far that it's so wide and open and 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 and, uh so far option the option for the 12 is just kind of a no-brainer yeah and then we both pack super lightweight spotters 
Yeah. Like mm-hmm. 40 power. Um, I like, I like the, I've been using it for years, the little military gold ring, 40 power Leupold scope. It's flat. It's small. has a little zipper case around it. I throw that thing in my pack. Ryan brings, uh, a, a, like a, uh, a, a, Rappy Vortex uh, 60 <laughs> something or 40, 50 power or something yeah, like that. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and we stack them up side by side. I think the Leupold's better. Uh, and uh, we could have that argument all day. They're yeah. both pretty low uh, resolution compared to the, you know, Swaro Hubble telescope, but mm. we don't need that, <laughs> you know? So we're running. You know, we're running those 12 power binos and a yeah. little spotter. Yeah. And we we basically cover as much ground as we can with the binos. Yeah. And once we're like, eh, I don't see anything, spotter comes out and we look the next mile further. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. for a glimpse. And bears are out motoring and moving and stuff. And it seems to be plenty of glass for what we do. Yeah. The the weight penalty is a big deal. Again, mm-hmm. you know. So uh, and sometimes we split that where he carries a spotter and I don't, or I carry one he doesn't, and we kind of, you know, at times if we're not splitting up, right? Um, well, we we well, we do that. And uh, one thing you run into, I, I like I like running a similar setup to you guys, where you you kind of have a, a some a good magnification to where you can see from a utility standpoint, and then if you need to look closer, you need to look farther, you use the the scope. The problem I found, because I've played around a little bit with those higher magnification ones too, is that yeah. it seems like when you do try to look closer, yeah. you know, anything closer than that half mile mark, your motions yeah. become a lot more uh, exaggerated. Yeah. E- even a little bit of shaking, a little bit of yeah. wind movement, a little bit of very, anything. Very hard to freeze. It's very hard to stabilize. Yeah. And I was at a, a banquet earlier this year where they were doing a bunch of giveaways and I got to play around with those, the SIG. I, the ones I'm looking at here, they're the Zulu six. They're the self-stabilizing the 16 ones. power ones. Yeah. yeah. And, and they were cool, but man, they're bulky. Like they so, are, they are hefty. Yeah. Have you guys <laughs> used them? No, I haven't so used them in the field I, yet. I, I have gotten the chance. Uh, I, I, I had uh, a couple of guides that I was on hunts with this last fall, two different fellas that had those Zulu six, 16 mm-hmm. power, 16 by 42. Yeah. image stabilization electro technology whatever yeah. <laughs> um glassing into the sun they sucked oh it was, really it was atrocious I, I i mean all you got was just orange lines through the glass it was awful mm. um as soon yeah. as you got um more than a binoculars width off one side of the sun or the other mm-hmm. um you know I, I, now, this is obviously when the sun is low on the horizon which oftentimes Which a lot. Yeah. yeah. It, it happens <laughs> a lot because that's happy hour. That's when you're going to see a yeah. lot of animals. Um, but, but as soon we as don't you don't have the angle of the sun, like you guys do either, it just doesn't right. do right. That. Yeah. Springtime um, down here. It's low. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And it's low for hours. Yeah. yeah. And it's yeah. annoying. When yeah. You're trying to Especially glass. when it's yeah. in your face while you're driving to work and in your face yeah. when you're driving right. back home. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it, so if, if you get it off the sun, just a little bit, then they're a lot better, but mm. they still have kind of like that clear haze type that of look to them. That surprises me from SIG. 
Well, I mean, you'd think they'd have better coatings than that. Not necessarily. Sig is trying to be the best of the middle class, is is what I've heard. Okay. Um, Now, that being said, in flat light conditions where the sun is up high in the sky and there's a nice cloud layer and the light is nice and evenly dispersed, Mm -hmm. they're great. And, well, okay, as long as you're not moving them around real fast. If you move them around quickly just for a quick pan, your eyes pick up that it's trying to stabilize it, and it kind of throws you off a little bit. But if you just work it really, really slow, it's awesome. And then if you're just holding them still, there's no shake at all. It, it's, it's almost as good as being in a spotting scope at low power. Now, that again, that's in a perfect situation mm-hmm. if you don't have to move very fast. Um, to me, I, I don't have any use for them yet, but I, I've heard a few rumors, I, you know, that nothing's confirmed at this point that they are coming out with higher end glass options. Mm. If they could put in better glass with less sun glare, I would be very interested in them. Well, it, it almost sounds from that description that they solved one problem, but created a slew of other ones. The other problem <laughs> I have is they're powered by a double A. So problematic i'm not uh not a huge fan of that um but i i as as far as weight and bulk goes um i I didn't think they were any worse than uh than the maven 18s that that other guy had on the Mm -hmm. hunt uh i i didn't think they were any worse than that the website i'm looking at right here shows them at about 20 ounces yeah yeah Yeah. um the uh i heard you on you talked to the loophole guy a while back uh Mm -hmm. and uh tim lesser yeah i was interested to hear your thoughts on the have you used the new, the new range finding binos yourself yet? Haven't got them yet. Haven't got them yet. Okay. Nope. But I do know a thing or two about them. I mean, I, I did break, I famously busted a pair yeah. of prototypes <laughs> uh, years ago. Um, but, you know, I think that the thing with, uh, one thing about range finding optics is they are all kind of, from what I understand, using basically the same glass mm. almost mm. because the way that the rangefinder has to send the signal and come back, you can't put Swarrow vision, uh, the coatings on glass are really what separate the big dogs from the mediocre and stuff. It's the coatings, right? Mm-hmm. Coatings can't be leveraged the same way with the range finding tech. So you have to sacrifice a degree of clarity and so forth and performance for the range finding capability. And what that does, this is kind of, from what I've heard is it reduces the quality of like this high end, for example, Leica, right? Right. Cause they got to step down to get the range finder to work, Mm. but it really does make those vortex loophole, like more middle range glass. It raises it up. So you get a better optic out of a range finder bino from them than you do typically out of the rest of their lineup their glass has to go up for that yeah the other guy's glass has Mm -hmm. to come down gotcha yeah Yeah, i was really interested in those just because of the price point was yeah very decent the proto the prototypes i messed around with and then i think they're going to be i think they're excellent i think they're going to be really good and the price point solid the glass is clear when you're using a range finding anything I mean, to me, can it cut through the snow? Can it cut through the rain? Right. Can it yeah. cut through the fog? Like right. That is where it really shines. 
And I got to tell you, having done tests with all the brands and messing around with them, Leupold has a has kick ass systems for their range finding setup. I think they're they have a way of. I mean, I've talked to guys that were guides and outfitters in Canada, in Alaska, mm-hmm. who have used them all, and they're like, "Yeah, we wouldn't have got this X Y Z critter if we had." Because when we were sitting there, the only one that would give us the range is the Leupold. And so mm-hmm. um, I, and I've kind of messed around with that myself. And I, I think they have a really stellar, and I've asked Leupold, how do you, how do you do it? You know, it sends like a packet of signals this way and it comes back with some signals and yeah. there's different things that they do. Yeah. Another one that's kind of fascinating is the Garmin Zero range finding mm-hmm. um, bow site right yeah and those dudes they're just they're freakish over there yeah their range finding thing compared to where it was when it started to where it is now like it might behoove one of these optics companies to figure out what the hell garmin's doing (laughs) (laughs) like damn magic right so um uh but again it's like there's all this engineering. It's it's a whole thing. I remember when I first got a Garmin Zero years ago. They should they gave me one. They're like, hey, we'd like you to try it and use it. And it would not send a signal on anything that was black. Mm. So if you were aiming at a black bear, it didn't <laughs> give you a signal. Like you couldn't tell you how far the range was. Oh, so no. you had to range the grass or the oh, bush my, next to it to get yeah. your range and put it back on. So um but now fast forward, the thing is amazing. So it just Tech is changing all the time, but mm-hmm. yeah, but yeah, I think that the Leupold rangefinding bino is for the price point um, uh, stellar. At this point, yeah. everything I've got's Leupold, and I, I like running American brands, and so if I can, I'm going to stick with I it. I do too. Yeah, I do too. Well, that's all. Uh, that's all good info. Did you have anything else to add before we move on? Oh, uh, no. I was just going to. Just a little tidbit, kind of with the clarity of those two is mm-hmm. uh, your your light trans transmission yeah. through any range finding optic. You have yeah. to be careful with that as well because the, like he was pointing out with the reflective nature of, of yeah. catching that laser as it returns, yeah. you're going to lose some of your light transmission. So the yeah. early, early morning hours, late evening hours, yeah. when you're, if you're looking at getting something like this, that's yeah. one thing you want to watch out yeah. for. And just on that note, you know, I, I know I've mentioned this before. I've, I've run those Leica range finding binos and, and they're not the most expensive models either. They're, they're mm. not, uh, you know, they're not the top, top model. Um, but they, they're very functional. They're very simple. They do a good job. They don't have any ballistic input into them. They're very simple, just click range. Mm-hmm. That's it. Uh, and, and at some point I, I definitely wouldn't mind getting one that has a little bit farther range capability. Um, mm-hmm. but with that being said, I have not had any issue with the snow or the rain and I can glass bears on the sun, man. Like, uh, yeah. they, I, That's cool. <laughs> I've, I've looked down beaches and looked at bears on the coast and they're walking with the sun at their back and they're coming down the beach towards camp and I, I can see them just fine. So whatever, <laughs> you know, that's a scene. Most people can only, whatever dream of. some, 
I mean, if it's the coating or if it's the glass quality, I'm not 100% sure. Um, but w- whatever they're yeah. doing, it uh, <clears throat> it does seem to work real well. Mm-hmm. One more thing I wanted to ask you about. We had on here uh, just some kind of gear and kit for these mountain bear hunts. Yeah. I, wanted mm-hmm. to, I wanted to specifically mention, uh, you already talked about rifles and, and, and that you guys like Weatherby. I think most folks that go and watch any of your guys' films will be able to tell pretty much from film one that you guys like Weatherby. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and that's, you know, that's awesome. Obviously we're, we're working with them, uh, and excited to shoot some of their guns this year. Um, but it, the lightweight, uh, you guys have shot that 338 RPM to quite the extent in the last couple of years. I know Adam brought it on a hunt a couple of years ago and took a real yes. nice color phase bear. Um, so I, I don't think we have to talk too much about the rifle side of it, but I, I did want to talk about footwear. Um, Mm-hmm. You have, well, you and Ryan both, I think, have a really unique preference for mountain hunting footwear. Mm-hmm. And it's very different from what mine is. And I, I'm, <laughs> I'm really interested to kind of, to kind of uh, lay this out for folks and, and just try to see sure. why you guys like the, I mean, there's one particular model of boots that, that I, I know you're going to say that for the life of me, I can't figure out why. So tell us what your favorite pair of boots is and why you All like right. it. <clears throat> now I'm excited. <laughs> so the best boot on planet Earth oh boy. is a crispy Laponia. Okay. And um, it's like a two flex rating. Yeah. Uh, like It's like a flip flop with laces. Boot. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. What's so funny is uh, for years, I would wear more of a tennis shoe type uh, boot, um, more like a Loa Zephyr or something like that. Okay. Um, and then, but it didn't have the stability and the, what I need. And a tennis shoe doesn't, isn't what I'm looking for, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, years later after trying a lot of different boots, I, I was wearing the crispy Nevada, yeah, like a nice leather boot that, as a three flex rating, pretty Ank- stiff ankle height. Yeah. Yeah. It's got some ankle support. It's a rugged boot. Um, and it's a great boot. I love the boot and it sort of shapes to your foot, uh, over time, like leather does. It's yeah. kind of like a can of Trek. Yeah. It reminds me of, of that boot, but it doesn't take as much wear in time as the, the can of Trek. Yeah. I think because the Kenetrick leather is so thick. Yes. Uh full grain and the the Nevada is so much more supple that right away you can buy a brand new Nevada and be walking in it tomorrow and it feels just beautiful. It mm-hmm. take takes a lot of work in time to get a a Kenetrick to get comfortable. Yep. Um those days where I was younger and We'd get boots when I was a kid. You'd have to wear them for months and months and months before the season <laughs> so that, you know, you could work them in. Right. Yep. But you don't really have to do that today with a crispy. I like that boot. But, you know, Ryan was wearing the Laponia. I thought it was lame looking um, and also <laughs> like a tennis shoe. And so I, I, I turned my nose up at it for quite a while. Finally, one time they're like, here, just take the boot, try it out. So I took it and I wore it and I uh, use it on a hunt, a little bit of a hunt, like hike day hikes. And I'm like, it's okay. It's, it's kind of, it's not very rugged, you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. kind of a lighter boot. Um, and then, uh, I kept going back to it, you know, I'd hike, uh, the mountains in the Wasatch here behind uh, where I live and I'd hike and I'd throw a hundred pounds in my backpack. I'd take the, 
the water cooler out of the mountain ops office and I'd throw it in my path <laughs> full of water plus weights from the gym and I'd climb that mountain because I wanted it to be bulky and heavy. Yeah. And then I'd put those Laponias on and I'd test that and I'd wear a crispy Colorado on one foot that was super stiff and I'd wear a Nevada on the other foot. I'd switch them up. I'd wear a Laponia and then I'd wear a Summit and I just was wearing all the different models and putting them through their paces. And I kept going back to that Laponia. I'm like, shockingly, I can wear this all day. Mm. It's super comfortable. It's got more stability than, than I realized. I feel almost barefoot, mm-hmm. but, but yet supported. And before you know it, six months later, I just can't get myself to put any other boot <laughs> on my foot. Like it is that comfortable all day long every day yeah. and it is plenty stiff enough and rugged enough for the uh steep mountain hunts that we do now you know i i think i have i like a more minimalist shoe during the day like i'll go barefoot a lot i i don't have a weak foot and mm. but i feel like um I, any other boot i put on my my foot i i feel like it's just restricted and I don't have my toes and everything doesn't move and I can't use my athleticism. And I feel like I'm kind of in a ski boot that doesn't flex and everything about it just bothers me. Hmm. And the Laponia breathes really well and I don't get foot fatigue and I don't get cramps. Hmm. Now, when I cut where I really liked it is when I took the sheep feet orthotic yeah. that was custom built for my foot. And I slipped that into the Laponia because for a while there, I was like, Pony is okay. I think what it was missing for me was just that little bit of a stiff footbed. Yeah. Just a little bit more that came with the sheep feet. I throw that on there. My foot doesn't shift or slide. I lace it up. It is, it's heavenly. I can wear it all day, every day. I never Mm. get that feeling like I got to get this boot off. I can, I'm totally comfortable. Mm. It's like lightweight. I don't feel it. And then when you go back to another boot, (laughs) <laughs> you just wish you had the Laponia on the whole time. You're cursing that you chose not to go to the Laponia. Come back to town and throw your Ariats on. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's my, my take. And that's Ryan's take. And now like Brad and a lot of us have now, I mean, it's like, it takes a while for a guy to like switch his mind up and do it. Yeah. But once you've kind of really given it an honest try, Man, it's hard to go back. Now it has its drawbacks because the sole is so thin, um, which is great because it's supple and uh, and you feel like your foot is this close to the ground because it kind of is like it's it's right on the ground. Yeah, but the problem is it has no traction. Mm. So, I mean, it really has none. But I prefer using Catula micro spikes for most everything so if i'm on a flat trail and i'm just cruising yeah i don't care like we might go a long way in on that trail then when we go on a steep hill i just pull the micro spikes out and i throw them on they're much more effective for those slippery muddy wet grassy hikes and climbs than it is to you to rely on any tread i don't care how good the tread is on your boot those micro spikes are better. So I'm like, well, if I'm going to wear the micro spike anyway, yeah. mm-hmm. why do I care if the sole is all that has all that much tread, you know, right. for, for the way I run. Makes so I tend sense. to run the sheep feet orthotic 
the Laponia and a microspike. Have and they beefed up the tread on the new Laponia 2 model that they revamped last year? They did. And it's ironic. I got a pair today. Okay. Actually, where only I have it, uh, where they put a much, you know, more intense tread on it okay. for me to test. Right away, I'm wearing it and I'm going, it is much much more beefy uh much more aggressive much much better more like some of the other boots i own but i definitely don't feel that close moccasin feel to the ground Mm, anymore yeah i lost that part but it might be a good trade-off i don't know so i'm gonna run it on this bear hunt and see how it feels right the only other issue with the laponia is it doesn't have the abss right uh ankle bone support system and so i actually run um i carry in my pack uh they're here somewhere the sweeto universal ankle brace been using Mm. those since i was in high school and then later when i played some ball in college Uh, it's much more supportive than any built-in boot support and um over the years i found i enjoy and feel better in that than i do in a boot that without it you know and the laponia the way the upper works i can throw that ankle brace on and i have my boots just a little bit sized up to accommodate for the brace and the sheep feet orthotic so i'll throw that orthotic on there put the brace on mostly my left ankle which is kind of i wear it to prevent injury mm-hmm. not because i really need it it feels fine but it, the ligaments have been torn three times and I broke the ankle and it just doesn't work very well. Right. So it can roll. It just rolls easy. So I just put that brace on and it doesn't, it never has roll. It will not roll. And that's just just on one foot. Yep. Typically. Yep. Just my left. Um, I'll bring the other one in my bag. And if, if we're packing out a heavy critter and it's nasty and it's dangerous or it can, I could get hurt. Yeah. Anytime we're, carrying those heavy packs i just throw it on yeah mm-hmm. day-to-day hunting when it's just your average climbs and all i don't bother but i'll lace up i'll throw i'll take the time to throw those braces on when it's time to pack heavy and yeah. i've been doing that the last two years and it's my favorite setup it's like layers i can take the braces off and i get more breathability and it feels light and i don't need it just for moving you know just for day hunts with yeah. a 25 pound day kit while we leave our base camp intact and go for a bear yeah i don't need it so i'll often just leave them in my pack yeah they don't weigh much and then i'll break them out when i need them the other thing that i use is hang on well while he's while he's finding that a big reason for i think we can probably say we've all been in a situation to need the ankle support yeah is when you're hiking through these mountain ranges i mean the shale rock that we have up here and yeah. the the inconsistency of yes. the terrain especially yep. in the areas that we hunt you can step on a rock that you think is yeah super solid and you'd never imagine it would move yeah. just under your own body yeah. weight but but you step on it and it just completely rolls over okay i'll use these red band uh, knee sleeves sometimes on oh, certain okay. trips and it, we use them in crossfit for heavy squats and and whatnot and wow you get the right size and you try this out you'd be shocked how much stability you have 
throwing these suckers on mm. and mm. you know again it's one of those things where it's like man i hate packing something like this but it makes such a difference if you're sheep hunting and you got to come down those mountains the ankle braces and the and the knee sleeves can save yeah. years of torn ligaments mm-hmm. and things like that it's it's so it, it it generates so much stability and so for long-term longevity for health i'll throw the, the absolutely i wouldn't squat you know 450 without the sleeves on <laughs> why would i carry these heavy pounds you know like i'm right. i try to be very smart and careful yeah, yeah about that for sure and uh and it works so yeah. i still <laughs> like the uh the other boot that's out though, if you look, they have a new uh, brick stall. I've looked at all that. of them. Yeah, I, I'm, <laughs> the I'm brick stall. Really excited the new about one that. That has uh, I got the wide, the new. It's a couple size, a size and a half up. I wore it. It's pretty nice. It's <laughs> it's now, got some updates. Did you get I the am, three flex full synthetic one? Yes. Yeah, that's the one I was thinking you were going to look at. Just because you tend to like that softer boot, it's synthetic, it'll breathe real good, mm-hmm. but it's got more of a sole than that Laponia does. I've been Much looking more. at that boot. Um, no, the, the Brickstall feels like a boot. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, know? it does. Um, mountain boot. Yeah, and I've spent but, uh, I've spent a lot of miles in the old Brickstall F, uh, SF, the, yep. the, the, the old black and orange one. Um, sheep yep. hunting. I, th- that was the pair of boots that I was wearing when I shot my Ram in, uh, in the fall of 21 on that mm-hmm. solo hunt there and real heavy pack out, um, a lot of miles and, uh, you know, north of that 120 pound range. And I really like that stiff, very little flex to it for that steep terrain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and that does have the ABBS, uh, support system yep. in it. I, I really like that system a lot. Now I, I, I had an issue with that original brick stall and, and, and they've, they've mm-hmm. updated it since then. Last year, they came out with the brick stall pro in a four flex. Yep. And now this year they updated the pro again to a five flex. And that, now that one is still a full leather new buck outer leather boot, mm-hmm. but, I saw the, that one but the old brick stall had a full neoprene tongue from the bottom mm-hmm. all the way up to the top. Mm. And I had an issue with, uh, with like glacial silt and all the creeks that I was crossing, getting in under that reverse lacing tongue and kind of jamming that silt rock up against the stitch where the neoprene tongue transitioned in the leather. And it was pushing water through and my boots would just mm. leak like a sieve. Mm. And mm. I, I got back off that sheep hunt and I, I was so upset. I, I actually called up Crispy and I, I ended up talking to Kendall. He was in the office that day mm-hmm. and we talked for quite a while. And uh, he, I, I told him, I said, man, I love these boots. I wish they were a little bit taller and I wish they didn't have a neoprene tongue on the bottom. He said, well, you know, funny enough, I've gotten a few other complaints about that. Be watching for a change. And uh, sure enough, last year they came out of the Brickstall Pro, which is a full 10 inch height still leather but now yep. the bottom half of that tongue up to where your uh, up up to where your ankle starts up into your um uh, up into your lower leg the bottom of that tongue is now leather mm. so there's not that neoprene stitch seam that you can get leaks into and now new for this year they have a few different brick stall do they call them the the the, um, the mountain brick stall i think that's what they call that line the mtn I'm terrible with names Possibly. i saw the sf and yeah. i saw 
the pro and I saw. So now they have the Brickstall synthetic, synthetic options mm. and they make that. Mm -hmm. I, I think they're both full 10 inch options, but they make it mm -hmm. in a three flex and a five flex and the synthetic ones are completely non-insulated. Now the Brickstall Pro is 200 milligrams insulation, which personally for me up here, even in August, I've experienced six inches of snow on opening day sheep season. I yep. like a, I, I like 200 milligrams of insulation. That's really not all that much, um, mm -hmm. but it's just enough to cut the edge wearing, you yeah. know, like a pair of darn tough socks. But like for super early August alpine blacktail deer hunts, mm. um, which I'm not going to throw any spoilers out there, um, but uh, that, that's that's in my future at some point. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, but for yeah. a hunt like that where you're, I mean, 90 plus percent, you're not going to see snow on that uh, down on the Southeast Islands down there on an Alpine deer hunt. That's a hunt where I would want a non-insulated boot. And honestly, I, mm -hmm. I, I will probably end up getting um, the three flexes because I've, I've run those five flexes like, uh, like I mentioned before. But last year, in the fall, I kind of experimented with a couple of different pairs of boots. I, I tried out a pair of Kenetrex and mm -hmm. I, I did break them in. Um, I, I did about 30 miles in them pre-season, which, which is, you know, relatively speaking, not that much. Mm -hmm. But then after I yeah. got in the sheep mountains and I, I was sheep hunting for almost the entire month of August with a few caribou hunts sprinkled in there as well. By the end of August, those Kenetrex were rolling over so easily. Mm -hmm. It's like that nice stiff new leather was just completely broke and there was no lateral support and that's where i that, that's where it really had that light bulb moment for me like this is what crispy is talking about with their ankle brace support system and mm. you know I, I i immediately regretted not having my crispies with me yeah uh, and, and i've also got a pair of the crispy hunters which are a phenomenal pair of boots it's a real traditional um, yeah, you know, yeah. full leather boot, 10 inch tall, but it's a three flex. It's nice and nice and flexible. I've used that a bunch on, uh, on moose hunts as it's well. Basically the Nevada, but with the tall. taller. Yeah. And, and it's got a full rubber rand. I, I wouldn't hesitate to wear that on any hunt in Alaska ever. Yeah. That, that's, mm -hmm. that's a, that's a great do it all. It's boot. kind of your general purpose all around. Yeah. Nice, it's that classic leather boot. boot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I've, I've really come to like that full 10 inch height. I mean, just for jumping across creeks and, you know, just doing little crossings like that I agree. with, I with agree. gators that, I mean, you might not think, well, eight inches or 10 inches that that's, that's a substantial difference. And for me, it is. I feel a lot more laterally stable with just a touch mm -hmm. taller boot height yeah. I, I really like that 10 inch boot one thing that i find interesting um i i learned this lesson the hard way i got a pair of colorados which was like a yeah. crazy stiff boot yeah i think it was a five flex i was um i i you know kendall wanted me to wear it i'm like okay i'll try it out it breathes it was synthetic it was uh stiff and I put on those heavy packs and I was hiking up the hills and I was wearing the, the Colorado on one foot uh -huh. and every other boot on the other foot. And the next day I'd switched for the Colorado on the left foot and I put a different boot on the right. And I was just testing, you know, how, how do these compare day after day on an eight mile, seven mile jaunt up these steep, steep hills. I left after a couple of weeks, I was like, I am so excited to use this Colorado, man. There's no denying that when I'm coming up and down these hills, 
yeah. that my I feel mm. more stable and yeah. I'm less tired and da 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 da. I'm like, yeah. So then I went on a hunt with Ryan Lampert, <laughs> and we hunted bears with Lusk. I was with Lusk. Turned out to be one of the biggest mistakes I have made <laughs> on a hunt because it is true that when I'm on straight vertical up and down like a sheep hunter, yeah. that I those boots were a godsend. Yeah. But then when you're in sort of more mountain, like the country that we're in, where you got to hike on some level, more level rolling stuff for like eight miles yeah. to the next mountaintop, they were in nightmare. Yeah. They didn't, they don't have the built in rocker. They don't help propel you. They're stiffer. They, they don't, they don't really bend at all. And I was dying day after day on these long treacherous, on these long grinding hikes. And when I hit a hill, I was like, oh, yes, I, I really appreciate this boot. But the flats were so brutal mm. that I found yeah. that I would prefer having a little less comfort on the steeps yeah. so that I have a boot I could wear all day yeah. on a 10 or 15 mile, just kind of average ground type of hike. It's yeah. just not worth the stiffness. That's when I started to shift away from stiffer boots to see an experiment and and over time i have found that i can deal with a flexible boot on steep nasty country just fine and the rest of the time i'm on i'm i'm i feel great i feel the best so yeah. you know because it's always a give and take right you can you can have the stiff boot that sucks on the flats or you can have the the, the really you know uh, flexible boot that's not as good on the steeps right i have found for me that the flexible boot is by far the most efficient boot for me across the board uh at the end of the day when i just judge based on performance feel fatigue yeah. like how much i enjoy it it's i just don't well, so i was going to ask since transitioning to the to the softer more flexible boot have you noticed any uh any increase in let's say your your muscle your muscle fatigue, your muscle development. Because the reason I ask mm -hmm. is my wife is a, uh, she went to college for archaeology and anthropology and all of that. And so mm -hmm. she is really into how the physical or how the human body reacts to certain things. And traditionally speaking, back in the day, most human footwear was a softer form like that. It was just designed to keep rocks and sticks from breaking the skin everything else right. was fine and and your body is set up in such a way that your muscle development in certain areas little little muscles in in your leg and everything like that and your your actual mm -hmm. full support all the way through your lower back is set up for more of a barefoot style walking mm -hmm. and people in the last hundred years or so have started kind of moving into that stiffer boot mentality the the super dense yeah. super thick stuff that doesn't allow your ankle to roll it doesn't you know it kind of gives you a lot more solid platform to sit on or to stand on but that's actually over the course of that time affected people's development of their for muscles sure. as they're hiking and they're finding that it's actually worse for your longevity hmm. and, and so i was curious if, if moving from the stiffer boots to the the softer more flexible boots you if you had any kind of a noticeable difference there I mean, in my whole life, I went with pretty minimal shoes. Very, very. Uh, so I only started using a little bit of a stiffer boot that one time. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been using a Nevada, you know, um, 
not a very stiff boot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was the stiffest boot I had really gone with. One hunt, I tried the super stiff boot, and I'm like, never, ever, ever, ever again. <laughs> yeah. um, so for yeah. me, but I know guys who live in those and love them. But I also know that they have Achilles pain and yeah. they have, yeah. they have uh, plantar fasciitis and stuff like that. Yeah. I do not have those problems, I think, because, first of all, I've been standing at a desk for uh, since tw- 2008. Mm. I stand at a desk all day like I am right now. I never, I rarely sit down. I'll be at the desk from 6 a.m. till 10 p.m. Hmm. I'm always standing on my feet, usually barefoot, just on the carpet. Yeah. So I can stand with the best of them. And I also think that the fact that I stand all day every day and it doesn't bother me whatsoever because I built that conditioning up. Mm-hmm. Half the time, I think a guy doesn't handle the mountain hikes much because he's not used to just being mm-hmm. load bearing on his feet yeah. for that many hours in a day, let yeah. alone the activity yeah. itself. Right. That's a good so point. So often I wonder, how come I can do all this stuff for so long mm. on my feet? Well, because I'm on my feet 10 or 12 hours straight, just standing. Yeah, I'm not walking, but I'm load bearing on this frame yeah. all day, every mm-hmm. day. 10 plus years. So I think it's a lot more powerful than people think. And I think also that's one of the reasons why my feet aren't weak. You know, I'm standing here moving my toes. I will rock back and forth. I stretch my feet. I'm, I'm feeling the earth, you know, beneath these feet. I walk Mm. outside. I don't put shoes on. I come back, you know, there's like a, I just try to do that. So Ryan has been the same forever. And so I think we both have really strong, feet my feet flex the other thing too yeah i've been doing crossfit for a long time i do olympic lifts i do deep squats i have a really deep and healthy and good squat i have a lot of mobility in my ankles a lot of mobility in my hips when i it's not hard i mean it's not hard for me to go into a squat uh, you know Mm -hmm. on a hill even and my ankle will bend in a way that most people don't have the mobility to do that. So when they climb a hill, when I climb a hill that's this steep, my foot is flat. Yes. Yeah. Right. And yep. my heel is my leg is up and yep. I'll go I'll climb flat. All these guys that like those stiff boots, like they don't have that neck. kind of mobility. They so they're putting their toe it. in yep. and they're climbing yep. right. this, this hill like right. that. Right. And that's because they don't have the mobility and the strength in that range of motion yeah. to just climb comfortably that mm, way. Yeah. And it can pull and it can pull behind the knee and put some fatigue on the on the calf. And you start sidestepping a little bit and you change your technique on the climb right. to give your a little bit of break. But I don't need a, I don't need that stiff hoop mm. and I don't climb on my toes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, nothing. You I know, I don't right. I think it's totally inefficient and but most guys I go with, they climb on their toes the whole time. And I'm like, that'll fry you in no time. I, I was just going to say that this last fall, I, I, I did something a little bit careless. I, I tried to take too much out in one load. Uh, a, a client had killed an animal, and uh, there was a couple of us guides on the hunt, and I was going to take it back down to camp, and they were going to continue hunting. And I tried to take out a whole caribou in one load. And that's... First and last time I'm ever going to try that. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I got it all in my pack. Um, it took me the better part of a minute to scramble up to my feet. It was 
challenging to say the least. And I staggered up onto my uh, onto my trekking poles and was flexing them. And I thought I was going to break one of those and shove them through my face, and I was just going to be found there. Mm. Um, but I, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I finally got up to my feet, and it, it was it was all downhill. So I thought, well, hey, what the heck? You know, it, it's just downhill. I'll just take it real easy. I'm not climbing with this. Because I, I, mm-hmm. I, in all reality, I, I really couldn't have climbed with it. There was no way I could have climbed yeah. with that. Right, right. But I started going downhill, and I was taking it real easy. And it's that soft, spongy ground. It wasn't wet, but it wasn't hard ground either. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I didn't have a real stiff pair of boots on. You know, that wasn't the issue. Um, I, I'm getting down through the hill, and I, I probably got about a half mile. And you know, it. About the first quarter mile, I was hating my life. I thought, man, this is stupid. I, I'm, if I fall, I'm going to get hurt. And then I was only three weeks into the season, and I was going to be up there for eight weeks. And I thought, man, I, I, I really should just drop this, take a couple of quarters out, and just make two trips. You know, why try to be macho about it? But, I, you know, my pride got the best of me, and I thought, <laughs> no, I'll make it out in one trip. Well, that didn't happen. I got another quarter mile, made it about a half mile from the carcass, and I tripped on a route. I couldn't mm. see it. My boot hooked on a root. And I, I this is the one time oh. I will say this. I, I wish I would have just gone down face first. I, I really wish <laughs> I would have. Really? But I didn't. It was kind of a steep drop. You know, it, it was relatively rolling. But this one spot, I just kind of dropped down a little bit. And I slipped and fell. And I went straight down on my knees. Mm. And my, my heels came up to the small of my back. And I just buckled and all of that weight on my pack just hyperextended the bend of, of both of my knees. Yeah. And I heard pop, pop. And I thought, yep, this is it. I did it. This is, I, I'm, I'm done. Mm. I'm going to have to get flown out of here. My, my wife is going to get to see me real soon. Um, I, I, I seriously, that, that, that's what came through my head. I thought, yep, I'm done. I just, I just ruined both my knees. I'm 25 years old and I'm done. <laughs> and uh, I, I kind of rolled over. And at, of course, at that point, when I hit the ground, my pack pulled me over backwards. Mm. So now I'm kind of laying there and I'm undoing my pack belt and my, my chest rig uh, handgun was up in my face. And, you know, I'm kind of scrambling. And, and to my surprise, I, I just rolled over and stood right up. And there was no pain right away. Like I, I thought, well, mm-hmm. maybe I just popped both of my knees. Maybe it's no big deal. And kind of rubbing them and squeezing them and nothing. Nothing was going on strange there. I, I didn't feel any pain right away. Of course, I immediately did what I should have done to begin with and took out two of the quarters and uh, flagged the meat in a tree and, and uh, continued on down to camp, finished the pack out. Well, the next morning I woke up and I, I, I'm a side sleeper and I woke up, I, I'd kind of tucked my, t- kind of tucked my knees up at an angle at, at, at uh, you know, kind of a bend when I slept that night. Mm-hmm. and. I woke up and just went to kind of stretch out, mm. and that's when it hit me. Yeah. I went to extend both of my knees out straight and just kind of, uh, you know, just stretch. And as soon as that my knees straightened out, it was just shooting pain in both my knees. And uh, I, I, I did another sheep hunt that next week, and mm. all through that sheep hunt, it was just constant constant knee pain. And, and, and every time I would kneel down after that, mm. it was just immediate knee pain. And I, 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 I struggled even wanting to go on that cheap hunt on, on that, uh, on that particular mm-hmm. hunt, because I thought, I, I don't even know if I can do it physically. I, I don't know that I can complete this. Uh, I, I ended up going on it. It wasn't that difficult of a hunt, relatively speaking. It was a, 
easier sheep hunt. Uh, but even even with having my knees being uh, injured, really, and and I, mm-hmm. and I I couldn't tell you what part of my knees that mm-hmm. was, um, yeah. what I injured, because by the time season ended, uh, five or six weeks later, they were fine, and I I, I was relatively good again. Um, yeah. But throughout the course of that next sheep hunt, for the next two weeks that I was in the mountains again doing the heavy lifting, you know, like you said, yeah. you're going in 80 pounds and, and I'm carrying stuff for clients too. Um, yeah. so I, I was not just carrying my own stuff and, but, but even on that hunt, the, the difference in pressure in, uh, and, and I, I should say when I climb a mountain, I, I do the same thing that you're talking about. If I'm on a slope like this, my foot is flat up to that slope. Mm-hmm. Unless I have to like toe pick to get onto a rock ledge or something, it, it's mm-hmm. very uncommon that I'm that that I'm a toe picker climbing anything. Mm-hmm. I really mm-hmm. like that that better grip and feel of just having my foot flat to the surface. I I, I feel like I get yeah. a better grip that way. Yeah, and, yeah. and it's and it's just habit. I I and I I don't think I really thought about it until that particular hunt when I started trying to toe pick and. Uh, the, the calf fatigue was immediate, but I I noticed a difference in the strain on my knees. Like it was almost more of mm-hmm. like a bouncing action of trying to like spring yourself up, and, and you're trying to use your stiffer boot sole to kind of assist in that climb. Yeah, and a lot of yeah. guys subscribe to that theory, mm-hmm. but I found it more comfortable, even with you know two um, bruised or you know injured knees. Still putting your foot sole flat on that, um, um, flat on the dirt or the rock or whatever, as long as it was doable, that you know th- that that was still perfectly comfortable for me. Well, you got to yeah. think about how much less strain it's putting on your calves and your your tendons and ligaments and everything when yeah. you are flat on the mountain like that. Yeah. You know, you're not suspending the rear part of your foot. Yeah. So yeah. I did a I did a podcast um, some time ago called uh it was episode 719 how to climb and descend steep mountains okay mm. and um you know here's the uh little cover image there okay you know? um, and in that i i basically walked people through you know um it's kind of broken up and covering little little pieces but i um was coaching people on you know technique how to stand how to how to do a one-legged squat, how to pivot oh, yeah. and yeah. And how the mobility matters and how you use your poles matters. And, right. and, uh, this stuff is sort of, you know, you kind of take for granted, you do it, you figure yeah. the stuff out, right. you learn maneuvers and everything, but it's not, it's not really that self-evident. And in the podcast, uh, my dad was having, has been having trouble. He's a little older now. And, uh, his knees are just not reliable, Yeah. but he started wearing these, uh, red band knee sleeves and, uh, we got him sized right. And he was just walking with a pack with about 25 to 30 pounds in it, going on two mile hikes, three miles hikes. And at first, whenever he went like anything, any walking at all, and his knees would just swell up, Mm. you know, but then he started wearing the sleeves and within, within like right away, he could walk. Mm. Right away, he could put on a mile or two and not have swelling. And wow. with that little bit of support and yeah. the compression, yeah. he started to be able to put on five miles. Then when we went on our hunt, it was like three months later, 
the first day he hiked in eight miles with like a 60 pound pack and he's no spring chicken. We hunted and he, we, we drug him through the ringer, but it was, uh, it was, it was amazing. Like you add a little bit of support like that, especially, yeah. like I said, you're carrying that ridiculously heavy load. It's amazing how much these knee sleeves support, give you that mm. added support. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. You know, try them out. Uh, I think they're definitely worth it. But I talk about it in that podcast, and it's pretty useful. Yeah. No, I, I'm definitely going to have to go back and listen to that one tomorrow at work. Um, I, I, I guess just to kind of wrap up the footwear situation mm -hmm. that we were having here, um, I, I just have to say footwear is highly individualistic. Oh, yes. Some people, mm -hmm. well, a lot of people love to ask the question, what's the best pair of boots? Well, right. what kind of feet do you have, man? Because you know what, yeah. as much as I like and have come to like more that three flex or even a two flex boot, I, I'm, I'm definitely interested in trying something like the Laponia. But I, for me, that three flex at the most a four flex, and this is again, mm -hmm. this is the crispy scale. I guess we haven't really prefaced that at all in the show yet. One being mm -hmm. a flip flop and five being <laughs> like an ultra rigid mountain boot, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So three is the middle ground and then four is on the stiffer side. That's generally where I fall. And I'm, I'm leaning more and more towards that three flex rating. Mm -hmm. But yeah. if somebody has an existing foot injury or ankle injury yeah. where they cannot use a nice soft boot like that, then maybe a five flex is the right boot for you. So I also think, I also think that you can take a boot that's nice yep. and you can add a sheep feed orthotic to it. Yes. Yeah. And in my experience, yeah. and I like the single layer foam. I don't like the double. Yeah. I don't like too much padding. I don't think that's as helpful. It's hotter. For me, it's not I love the single with the little heel yep. thing on it. Yep. It has been amazing. I can slip that into a boot and it takes a boot that's good and puts makes it so much better i agree so and, and i think that that's a big deal i think that people don't, are missing out on the fact that that orthotic can really take yeah whatever boot you own now and make it just a little bit better yeah mm -hmm. i agree I, I was gonna say even for my spring bear guiding I, i'm in extra toughs all the time and i take mm -hmm. out my i, I personally I, I haven't tried the sheep feet orthotics yet uh, i i just have a pair um, of uh super feet insoles yep. with the plastic I use those for years the plastic mm -hmm. back half it's a nice rigid insole but it cups your heel and keeps your foot from sliding yeah. around in the yeah boot and, 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 it's, and it's really simple you just go to your local you know if you have a sportsman's warehouse that's where i get mine um you just figure out what your arch is I, I believe it or not even from going barefoot most of my childhood years on concrete <laughs> growing up in uh, growing up in fiji I, I was barefoot all the time and i, I still have high arches um yeah. so i i i, I mm. run the uh, the orange sheep feet uh, sheep feet, super feet. And uh, even in like the spring bear guiding season, when I'm in extra toughs, I'll put those super feet in my extra tough boots. Yeah. And, it, and it, like you said, it makes them feel yeah. like a real high quality pair of boots. But yeah. yeah. And I think it's important not to get your pride so high that you kind of avoid using any of these extra features. Yeah. A lot of guys don't want to admit they need knee sleeves. A lot yeah. of guys don't need, want to admit they need extra ankle yeah. support or arch right. support. But I mean, as you guys have pointed out so many times, the longevity it allows you, you're not just going to be able to get out there this season, but right. the next 10 seasons right. And, right. and still be healthy and still be building, still right. be growing. Yeah. That's, that's really an invaluable thing. 
Yeah. I mean, and your pride's not worth it. I mean, I agree. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Hey guys, if you've listened to the show for any amount of time, you've likely heard Dalton and I go back and forth about bullet construction. Now I like rapid expanding bonded core bullets that leave massive wound channels. I've also stated I would never use a monolithic bullet. Well, I'm here to tell you about the company that finally changed my mind. Hammer Bullets produces what I would consider the most premium and best working monolithic bullets on the market today. These bullets are designed so that after penetrating the hide of an animal, the front half of the bullet explodes, shedding its petals and imparting massive damage to the vital areas while retaining the rear shank for maximum penetration, effectively closing the gap between lead core and monolithic construction. The guys at Hammer designed these bullets with 100% focus on how they perform once they reach their destination. But don't let that fool you. These bullets have amazing VCs and have specialized pressure groups built in for amazing inherent accuracy. They have a minimum velocity rating of 1800 feet per second, which allows for long range shots, but have no maximum velocity, making them perfect for every cartridge from your granddaddy's old 3030 to the high velocity rounds like the Weatherby 3378 without having to worry about your bullet failing. They've also recently partnered with Weatherby to provide factory ammunition for a multitude of cartridges. To view their expansive selection and find the perfect match for your hunting needs, go to hammerbullets.com to buy yours today and drop the hammer on your next adventure. I wanted to get into kind of the next level. You know, once you're, you've got your, your feet figured out and you're in there, what mm-hmm. do you use and, and what's your recommendation on like a shelf? what your shelter and your sleep system setup is specifically for these spring bear hunts. Cause springtime can present its own kind of new level of, of issues with the snow just melting away. So maybe there is snow in your area. Maybe there's a lot of melt off or you end up in, in things like that. Uh, what do you focus on primarily for your, your setup there? We use primarily two shelters. Um, uh, we honestly are, we're at that point where if you use a shelter that's not floorless, you're a loser. Um, <laughs> and you're, well. you're living in 1990 and you like MSR hubbas and stuff like that. Like I don't, or Hilleberg. It's like, what the hell is wrong with you? you like get up with the times. Um, so uh, I see some finger pointing in here at yeah, Dalton. That, so, that's, that's me. I, I, I still run an MSR hubba hubba two man oh, with carbon you're poles. Just, you're just a glutton for punishment. <laughs> so here's the deal. Here's the deal. Like people always ask, they're like, well, I can't imagine floorless. You know, the floorless is, uh, I just don't get it. You know, um, the floorless is nothing like Mm. after you've used it enough water doesn't come in bugs aren't an issue it's not this 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 uh boogeyman that you think it is Mm. it's it's really it's really more uh practical across the board you just don't need a floor you just don't you throw out some tyvek or whatever your ground cloth is throw that down you're good um and we have now the, the, the main reason why we run with floorless is for fire, for a stove. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the life in the backcountry without a stove is just, we're done with that. Like that life <laughs> is the past. I will not live back there without it. And it's funny because so we were having this conversation with like Dustin Rowe the other day from Backcountry BC and beyond. 
And they're still, I see these guys still running these like tents and they're like, yeah, but we're uh, she hunting sheep and that. I'm like, I don't care. I don't care. We set up these teepees on the tops of cliffs and in mountains and above us, uh, Alpine all the time. We put them in windstorms. Yes, you have to be, you have to stake them down, right? You have to use the right kind of stakes. You need to, you need to get all the guy lines tied down. Um, sometimes we actually rock them out. Most of the time we do, especially if we know there's a storm coming, which we would do with another tent anyway. And we will, we will also even stack up a barricade or logs, but we'll drop an elevation 500 feet so that we can tuck out of a storm and set up down there. And then, you know, what we'll do, there'll be wood there and then we'll burn it and it'll be warm (laughs) and cozy all night long. And every bit of our gear will be dry. Like I, I don't get it. Like, uh, honestly, it's just, I watched, uh, my friends, Tannis and Doran cross the river, get wet. Boots got wet, uh, set up this this tent there's wood around they're not they're there's going after a sheep but they're not up there yet they could have dried everything out right then and there mm-hmm. the nice little wood stove and the whole setup weighs less than their setup does yeah so it's not a weight thing right um i don't get it i think and it's a big it, part of it is familiarity people haven't tried it and they're yeah. they're afraid of a floorless they're afraid of water coming in they don't yeah. know how to do it. Well, you know, Chris, uh, we hunted with Chris. Yeah. And Chris owned, uh, he had never used a stove in all this time. And he went on, a, I'm like, Chris, if I'm going grizzly hunting in Alaska, I'm going with a stove. I mm, am not. Yeah. I am, okay, call me a diva, but I am <laughs> over this whole cold camping bowl. Just and so, suffer through the shivers. <laughs> yeah. So I showed up. And I brought the that the 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 teepee shelter, pitched the little carbon pole in the middle, got the stove going. We had fire every day. You know, what Chris did after a week of that, went and bought all the whole kit, and he had, <laughs> he'll never go back. Yeah. Never. It will always be fire all the time, all season long. Yeah. So it's really hard, even in September when we're hunting elk at this point. There have been times where we say, you know what? It's spring. The weather's been great. You know what we're going to do? We're just not going to pack the stove. Mm. And then we almost always get hit with some rain squall for two days. Everything gets soaking wet or you fall in the river as you're crossing it, which is going to happen sometimes in a little boat. And now what? Now you got a full grain leather boot that is going to take what forever to dry? Yeah. No, not when you have a teepee. You just get it warm inside, and I have a little Graxaw boot dryer that plugs into my my you know dark energy like whatever the battery pack is. Yeah. Little airflow. My boots are dry within half hour or so. Mm-hmm. In late season, it's a no brainer to bring a stove. Yeah. Um, just because your boots get a little wet on the outside, they'll even fr- freeze like a rock. Yep. yep. When I put my boots on every morning, when it's like ten degrees outside. That's after they've been warmed up by my warm stove and the little fan is blowing them dry. And I put yeah. on a hot, supple yeah. boot as if I was uh. leaving my house. And when I walk outside, my feet are warm and my boots just, they just move. It's just beautiful. Yeah. Leather's I'm, supple. So, and I'm so, yeah. <laughs> over the last, uh, I think over the last year or so, when Graxall came out with those ultralight um, boot dryer fans, 
Mm-hmm. I had those guiding last fall. I bought those. Oh, that yeah. was. Uh-huh. And, and this is. I, I do not have a heated shelter such as yourself in all your glory. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but even without a heat source in my tent, just getting that airflow, and and even on hunts where I didn't step in water and and, and go over my boot tops, even mm-hmm. when they weren't wet Sweat. from water. Mm-hmm. You sweat a copious amount throughout yep. the course of a hunt. People have no idea. You can sweat up to a liter of water a day yeah. out of your feet. Right. And it's going into that boot. There's nowhere for it to go. Exactly. And even on a nice synthetic boot, you still have moisture that gets retained in there. And mm-hmm. so what I did all fall long, uh, every couple of days, I would sacrifice a little bit of battery life from my chargers and mm-hmm. just run those boot dryers. Um, for a couple hours and a couple times all the way through the night. I mean, if, if I had a couple of good days of sunshine and I, I wasn't worried about burning my battery banks and not having solar to retop it off, then I would yeah, just run those yeah. boot dryers all night long. I, I tell yeah. you what, that was the most popular item in camp. Everybody was asking me that heard about them. Hey, I heard you have boot dryers. I said, <laughs> yeah. And you know how much they weigh? And I would throw them, I, I had them in a little tiny Sea to Summit dry bag, a uh, sill nylon uh-huh. dry bag. And I had taken an old Thermarest, uh, a folding half. So I put the boot dryers in this little foam case, if you will, yeah. slid them in the dry bag so that my electronic USB port never got wet and they were protected yeah. so that I can just mash them into my pack wherever, right? Mm-hmm. So, I would, so I would just throw them that dry bag and they'd say, well, there's nothing in here. I said, open it up. <laughs> and they would pull out these little boot dryers connected by a USB cord. And they're like, no way. And I'm telling I, 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 everybody, everybody was wanting to see those that, that heard about them. I mean, they, they are a phenomenal piece of kit. They really are. They, they change how, how comfortable you can be back there. And the shelters, the big thing for a long time was teepees blow down in the wind. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, yeah. they're not freestanding. They've got this issue. They got that issue. Mm. But the way that they are designed today, like the Peaks teepee, yeah, we've put it in some places. I, I we have yet to lose one. We have yet to have one pop off and blow away. We have yet to have one. And think about where Ryan and I, how we hunt. Oh yeah, all year round and all the conditions we hunt in, and we do mm-hmm. not hunt with anything but a floorless teepee. Yeah. So if we can pull it off in every hunt we do. No one's right. doing stuff more. I suppose there are some sheep hunters that are truly up on the tippy, tippy, tippy top of some places yeah. where I could see, I could see the, you know, the floor dome shelter Hilleberg style type, 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 type tent has its use. However, and, and I, fine, I can concede that you could go up there you could set up your dome. It might probably could perform a little better than the TP design. Although the TP design in the peaks with the cross member trekkers that go through the mm-hmm. top, which stiffen the top and you tack it down, it is taut. It yeah. does, it just, it takes a beating. And, and we put it in the high wind tunnels and all that. And we've been able to keep it standing. So I'm not convinced that the other, type of shelter really is needed, but I don't want to send some sheep guy up there and then find out I'm dead wrong. You know, I haven't (laughs) tested it in that exact scenario, (laughs) right? right. But in all the scenarios that I have done, and we hunt in some 
tippy top of some mountain places. And Ryan always wants to hunt on the windiest, nastiest ridge in the wide open where <laughs> you're sitting duck and the storm comes and you think you're going to die. And every time we don't. Yeah. So it just keeps holding up time after time. But I still, in that situation, I still would bring the teepee and the stove. One guy would bring it. Mm-hmm. It's invaluable. It's indispensable. You can't leave it behind because inevitably you got to drop down into the, into the timber line. There's wood there. You can warm up. It's there for emergencies. It's there for three days of being stormed out. It's there for recovery, mm-hmm. for getting your gear in order. Yeah. It's just too useful. So sure, bring the dome, but don't leave the teepee. The teepee is a pound and a half and the stove is a pound, two pounds. Yeah. Between two guys, you're talking about a three, three and a half pound rig for two dudes. That's, you split that up. You're yeah. sub two pounds each. Yeah. Like how can you justify and, leaving it behind right. given the power of what it is, especially as you're in those rainy, nasty or wet or cold conditions, it just changes everything. And Tobias, he's just like, hell yeah, I got, (laughs) he brings the big mama stoves. Like he he goes like full (laughs) hot, like um, more, more fire, more power, you know, and just carries that weight. And we found ourselves doing that more and more too, because it's just a little bit more in ounces mm-hmm. with that powerhouse furnace. And yeah. there you have it. And you're, yeah. you're so, it's just so much easier to hunt and recover, keep your gear. You need that ambient heat just all around you. Yeah. And we sleep better too. Oh, yeah. um, you can get all that condensation off of you and all that every mm-hmm. day, your bone dry, your bag dries out. I remember being in New Zealand in a nasty, nasty place. And we went up to the top and we set up and all of that. And uh, our gear kept getting wetter and wetter and wetter, and we didn't have a stove to burn Mm. any wood. And I remember thinking to myself, this is the biggest, one of the biggest mistakes we've ever made on a hunt because my bag is now pretty much flat from the ankles down. And I cannot seem to get it to dry out any way, no how. And it's really cold. I'm miserable. And what would have just a little wood stove had we packed that one and a half pounds or two pounds would have solved so many millions of so many problems with the whole hunt. Mm-hmm. So that's my thing. Floorless teepees. Mm. Now, some of the places we hunt are steep like this. And in that case, we use a, uh, uh, a, a, a trucking pole, a solo shelter design. I, I like to seek outside Silex. Mm-hmm. with a wood stove box yeah. do a medium or large don't use the cub it's like a cracker box this big it's a it's annoyingly <laughs> small um use a real stove use the bigger size up yeah but that silex it's legit um it's uh it, it's like 200 bucks it's not very expensive you can set it up with your trekking poles throw that little titanium stove under there it's super lightweight and you can put it, you can pitch it right over a deer bed. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Somewhere around episode seven, seven fifteen 15 to 725 in there, we did some shelter breakdowns and we showed you some setting that shelter up on some just steep spots. You just kick out a deer bed, pop it there. Yeah. And boom, you're, yeah. you're in those hills and you can still run the stove too. Right. So 
but it's floorless, man. We're all in on the floorless. So talk about your, uh, your ground cloth options for folks that might not, mm -hmm. you know, folks that might be listening and think, well, what keeps your sleeping bag from getting wet? So talk sure. about that a little bit. So it's funny, like as long as you don't set, set your tent up where it floods, you won't really get water underneath <laughs> it. Okay. I sense. mean, that's as simple as it is. <laughs> like when, um, what, what people think is water is going to come in underneath. Mm -hmm. That's the big thing. How do you keep water from coming in? It's not like that. I mean, you set the teepee up, the rain comes pouring down and I'm talking for days. Yeah. The water just goes outside. It doesn't flow back under mm -hmm. just like if you're under a tree and the water is yeah. just coming down and stuff and then it's dry right around the tree. It just, it doesn't roll back under. Now, if you're set up in an area where there's excess water, like I did in Southeast Alaska up in the Alpine, I mean, we set that thing up and it flooded you're and right. underneath this mountain hardware tent, there was like this much water flowing. Mm. It was like a waterbed. And yeah, yeah we stayed dry been in there, there. <laughs> and uh, a floorless shelter would have been a nightmare. Yeah. It would have been a nightmare. Um, but that's not where I would set that thing up. Mm -hmm. I would never have even thought about putting it there. I would have put it somewhere else where, uh, where when that rain does come, you know, and you can see, you can look, it's like, this is high ground. This is dry ground. Mm -hmm. This, this sheds water. So you have to be a little bit, uh, better. Definitely up where you guys are, it can be more challenging setting up in a way that the water doesn't get in because you yeah. have a lot more water than we do mm -hmm. down here typically. But like I hunted, I hunted grizz there in June and I hunted grizz there in August and we got enough rain to choke a horse and especially in <laughs> august yeah and the rivers were flooding and yep. it was mm -hmm. it was a lot of wet yeah we were bone dry yeah we set up the water didn't come underneath so typically what i like is just that 20 dollar tyvek ground cloth yeah that you buy like on you know amazon or something mm -hmm. nothing fancy i've tried a lot of different options but tyvek is fairly puncture resistant yes you need something puncture resistant and water resistant. Right. You know? So Tyvek works great. If you have a, a um, sort of a washing machine where you can break it down, that's nice. You can take that crackly loud Tyvek, mm -hmm. throw it in the washing machine, turn it on, let it do its cycle, do that two or three times, pull it out and just let it air dry. And you have a pretty supple Tyvek at that point that mm -hmm. retains that waterproofness and retains that uh, puncture resistance, resistant nature. And um, it's typically four feet wide by like, I don't know, seven feet long or eight feet or something. Yeah. And uh, Ryan and I just roll, lay them out and you lay on top of that. Yeah. And what that does though, is it allows you to have your stove burn and you don't have to worry about the floor. Now peaks, because Bryce, the owner of Peaks, can't wrap his mind around a floorless shelter. But Ryan and I have so told him, you must have one. Sorry. <laughs> and, and, and he has trusted our opinion. But yet he built a floor for it. So you can get it, but it has a floor too. Yeah. And I got to admit, it's sexy. 
you know, because you just stick it on the ground and it's the footprints perfect. Mm-hmm. And then you just hook up your tassels, you know, to the shelter itself and it kind of folds inside. So it feels like a little tub, yeah. little floor. Right. And then where the stove goes, you just have a little zip and you can remove that little patch. The stove goes there and now you're pretty much floored except for where the stove is sitting. Gotcha. So you don't melt or burn the, st- the ground. And now you have a shelter that's floored with a stove for sissies. So you can get that <laughs> if you want to. Uh, or, or for people that hunt in wetter environments. Yeah. True. Well, yeah. true. And, and that's the thing <laughs> is I know that a lot of the holdback of people I've talked to locally that yeah. are kind of going back and forth on whether they should do it or not is because yeah. up here – it's not necessarily water flowing underneath that you're wondering it's about. water that comes it's, up from underneath. We have a lot of that just saturated yeah. tundra here. And so yes. it, the fear or the, the holdback is that going with a floorless will then limit your your campsite ability. I so if you're tell. out somewhere, yeah. you have to be a lot more picky about right. where you can stop. I can't you tell know, you. You know, when we floated... And we hunted that spot, you know, we hunted up and down with yeah. the caribou and the moose, you know, mm-hmm. we're in this, we're, we're dealing with those conditions you're talking about. Mm-hmm. It's fine. Is there, yeah. It's totally fine. Yeah. We could find a swampy spot that was <laughs> relatively, you know, up and above ground. And yeah, you lay on it. And it's like, oh, this is a little squishy. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, you know, when we're floating like that, we brought cots. <laughs> we brought those Helix, uh, Helinox. Yeah. Cots. Helinox. Yeah. Oh man, that was heaven. Um, <laughs> now, if yeah. you have the backpack in, then maybe not. But right. it was sure nice uh, on yeah. the float to have those. Yeah, um, it's definitely a, you know, it can. It, you have to think a little bit ahead on how and where you're going to set it up. There's no question. Right. You're you have to adapt the the piece of equipment to the situation yeah but we have been able to do it in every single circumstance on every hunt this is Mm -hmm. not a deal breaker and the benefits of having the fire far outweigh the inconvenience of the spongy ground that you have to deal with and work around right Mm -hmm. it just you just have to use it a lot get skilled with it know more about it you will never go back Mm -hmm. you just won't go back it sounds like seek outside solve the problem for us with the spot for the stove in the middle i'm sorry i still don't buy the floorless like yeah I've, I've and i have looked up and listened to your podcasts and watched your videos about it and heard you you know and i could see it there's parts that i hunt places i hunt i could see using it but mm-hmm. there's a lot of places i hunt that if i find a flat piece of ground there's going to be tundra and if it's been raining for for even a day mm-hmm. it, i'm not going to find a spot where i can put my sleeping bag on the ground even with the floor mat and not be fairly confident i'm gonna get i can't tell you how many wet. times i've taken down is, my tent and in the footprint of the tent i pick it up and, and, and by the way this is my msr hubba hubba that you were talking about <laughs> earlier hubba, hubba. <laughs> <laughs> and uh you know full-on tub tent on the bottom that doesn't let water get in <clears throat> and uh, <laughs> and the, the, inevitably you take the tent out and there's a whole puddle underneath the tent. Mm-hmm. Like you, you can put yeah. your foot down yeah, there yeah. And, the, and the water just comes burbling you're right. up you're next right. to your there's, Mo, you're, you're absolutely right. There are situations like what you're describing. If you're in some place like that, mm-hmm. I could see where you'd have to hike pretty far or really settle on a different spot. So anything to be able north to, of the brooks? 
<laughs> well, yeah, there's not a whole lot of hunting north of the brooks. There's oh, a little bit. I don't it's know, man. There's a lot of caribou, grizzly, moose. There's a lot up there. It, yeah. Yeah. There's not much moose north of the brooks, though. There's not a lot of moose, but there's some. I would say, like, I really think that um, you could find, like, we always do a place to pitch it. Yeah. And it's worth the mm-hmm. worth yeah. hassle. I, I've. I've been listening to a lot of it, and I'm I'm pretty well sold on the idea. I think yeah. I want to try it this year. I, 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 as as you've been talking, <laughs> I've been kind of mentally going through all mm-hmm. of my different spots that I've hunted. Yeah, and th- honestly, there are probably only two or three places that I've been that I that that I do not think I could have found a better spot. Everywhere else, even if I did camp in a wet, you know, mud pit. Mm-hmm. in my dome tent most of the places i could have just been more particular about it and just picked a better spot mm-hmm. to put the tarp yeah um I, i'm sorry to, to put a teepee if i had that uh that teepee style shelter okay yeah. you know what else too like some guys do um when we were in the snow yeah we just pitched the teepee on top of the snow but as the fire burns it sinks hmm. right uh, and so you tend to dig it out till you get to some hard pack and then you deadfall the, what do you call it? Dead, uh, stake. The, what do you, what am I thinking on the word? When you take the stakes and you bury them in the snow. Oh yeah. Um, you know, cause you're not going to be able to dig them. You turn them sideways, bury right. them in the snow, right? step on them, whatever. And then you can just jack the pole up to sort of top, put it more taut or less right. taut. Right. Right. And then, well, we used a cookie sheet and you set the stove on this big giant metal mm. cookie sheet, aluminum, mm. and it keeps the snow from under the cookie sheet. It reflects the heat and it doesn't really um, get hot or melt under oh, there. Interesting. And the pole is there too. So the pole stays and the outside stays, but the center okay. starts to sink a little. Pretty soon, when you go inside of it, it's like a staircase into it. And now you're standing <laughs> yeah. in there and every day you're shoveling a little more snow and it gets to be a giant castle. <laughs> It's pretty sweet, um, uh, but you you figure out ways yeah. to leverage mm-hmm. the system. Yeah. The other thing yeah. that I've seen guys do is they do make. I think use might have a. I think it has a floor where you, you see these dome tents. Didn't Barney's have something dome tents that have stove jacks and floors? Yep. I think uh, that's what we had in Kodiak when I was yeah. hunting with Cole. Yep, the old Cole uh, had. Um, the, it, it's called a bomb shelter. Yeah, mm, and yeah. he I, I don't remember if he just bought a tent and then had someone custom build a stove jack for it or if it came with it. I don't recall. And the Arctic ovens do too, but those aren't a back. Those are a heavy, like you're sledding or, or riding in if you take that. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But what I'm getting at is they had the floored shelter like Kuyu's mm-hmm. basically, but you throw a sheet cake or a pan there or whatever, you know, you, you can have the floor if you want right. and still have the stove as well. Right. Yeah. I just don't, I just don't think you need it. Like I said, that peaks floor, the peaks, uh, solitude floor, it's like uh, another 10 ounces or something for that. Yeah. So it adds a few more ounces than a Tyvek sheet does. Right. Not right. very much, right. but it, it is, it does keep that water from coming in through the bottom yeah. there yeah. and you can zip away that spot for just the stove right. and it, it could make, it could work for a more wet environment like what you're describing. But, um, 
But yeah, at this point, I just I look at I'm watching guides and outfitters, mm-hmm. I'm watching Dustin's crew, and I'm thinking, um, there's no way I would I would you just you're the the reluctant. It's like when people are like, I don't want to get. I don't want to get a smartphone. It's too complicated. And they stick with the flip phone. <laughs> right. That's what I feel like when I watch all hey, these people. Out. Check this out. Best of both worlds. <laughs> right <there. Yeah. laughs> the flip smartphone. But you know what I mean, right? Yeah. Like that's, that's what I'm trying to say. Like it's yeah. definitely gets, get one and gets killed with it and then right. decide, Oh, this just doesn't work for this area. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I think you'll find that 90% of your hunts or if not all, hmm. Yeah. You're going to go, and I, it's like, uh, you'll never go back. Okay. Yeah. Circling back to the Tyvek for just a second. Now, when you say Tyvek, do you mean the roll of Tyvek like house wrap I can go buy at Home Depot? Yes. Okay. Yep. Say so we make a, or we we buy a product for wrapping sheet metal with where I work. Just cut a little piece out. And it's actually out. a lot better and stronger than Tyvek, but about the same weight. It's quite a bit heavier duty because we'll wrap stuff with it. And Tyvek can tear pretty easy, at least what I've been familiar with, compared to the stuff we have anyway. I, I know my boss would let me cut a piece of that off for free. So, <laughs> well, absolutely, cut we, three that off. Works. Yeah, have, yeah. We, we, we call it Alaskan siding. Yeah, they have different. <laughs> well, they have different grades of Tyvek, but it's right. basically house right. house wrap, mm-hmm. you know, depending on what what you're getting. <laughs> They'll sell those ones with grommets built in. You can like stake them down, yeah. but they're no good because they'll just rip out. Just rip out. I mean, yeah, yeah. Take nothing. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think that. Pretty well covered uh, shelter. Um, just a quick touch on your sleep system, sleeping bag. I know uh, kind of the direction you're going to go with this. I'm really curious which bag flattened out on you in that New Zealand situation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I already know the answer, but I'd like to hear what you have, uh, what you've <laughs> gone to back and forth with, with the sleeping bag realm and, and, and where you're kind of sitting at right now. It's so funny because you have, uh, like we talk about boots and people's opinions and stuff like yeah. that. Um, and so what one man says is great. Another says sucks. And that's the situation with Ryan and I, Yeah, Ryan will say, this is the world's greatest sleeping bag. And I'll say, no, it's not that that thing is so (laughs) subpar. It's ridiculous. And so it's just one of those things where, uh, I, I will tell you what my opinions are, but like boots, I think I'm right. Okay. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> I, I know enough to realize that Ryan thinks he's right. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just going to tell you, he loves that and has loved that Chilkoot sleeping bag from Stone Glacier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's really appreciated it. He found a lot of value in it. He, he's like, it works great. And when I said the bag sucks, and when I said I like the Western Mountaineering <laughs> Badger way more for a million reasons, he's like, you're crazy. He was vehemently upset with the fact that (laughs) I completely disagreed with him. He thinks I'm crazy. How can you say that? And he's like sending me pictures and videos of him (laughs) testing the bag underwater. And I'm like, look, dude, I don't get cold and it doesn't go flat. And the chill coot does. So I don't know what to tell you. So Um, was the chill coot the one that flattened out in New Zealand? Yes. Interesting. Yep. Mm. And my issue there with that is this. Um, I think Ryan, we are so different body wise. 
Yeah. I mean, across the board. Yeah. I'm much hand, more handsome and stuff like that too. But, <laughs> uh, but, but when you just look at, like when it's cold, when it's really cold outside, um, the man is uh, resilient. He doesn't, he does feet don't get cold like normal people's feet. You know, he's kind of a, a Northern hemisphere kind of genetic person. Yeah. You put him in 70 degrees and he turns purple. He hyperventilates. <laughs> he's dying of heat exhaustion. He's crawling under a tree. He acts like he's going to die. You know, I mean, it's, and me, on the other hand, you can put me in the boiling sun and yeah. I feel fine. That's I, mean. I'm, That's I mean. am yeah. so warm and cozy. No. The hotter it can burn my skin. It oh, just yeah. never bought. That's it just, it, I'm fine. I love it. And so, Given the fact that uh, we obviously have different body body responses, we, he handles the cold much better than I, and I handle the hot way better than him. And when we did CrossFit workouts, we'd go to the gym. When it was 110 degrees, 105 degrees, and everybody's working out outside, I would kill. I would dominate. Mm -hmm. I would sling weights around, run, climb the rope, and I'm just like sweating, and I'm like, this is this is i'm supercharged in this temperature yeah and everyone else would just <laughs> drop like flies <laughs> and uh they'd complain about the heat then when the winter came and the workout would start out at like 6 a.m and i'd show up and it's not really a heated building that's the whole you know and I'm, i couldn't lift half the weight i could normally lift i had no drive no desire to exercise i get through the workouts i'd be cold during the work piss me off the whole thing i wanted to quit <laughs> and ryan is the opposite the total opposite so given that he doesn't get cold in his sleep he's not a cold sleeper so when he gets in his bag and he goes to bed you know i he he's not a cold sleeper i get in the bag and i swear my temperature drops another 10 degrees mm -hmm. and like i swear mm -hmm the blood to my feet just stops going. It's just like, I'm just colder. <laughs> yeah. So, and I have a really low pulse, like I'm dead pulse. So, uh, <laughs> I lay there and it'll, it'll, when I go to sleep and I'm relaxed, it'll go, it'll pump. And then it'll just, it'll, mm. the heart won't pump again. <laughs> quite a while. And so the rate is slow and the pulse is slow, which, is usually hypothyroidism or something like that. Mm, and, you okay. know, they'll be worried about, you know, do you pass out after you do a heavy squat? Do you not have enough blood pressure? So, but no, I don't have any of that. It's just genetic. It's, I'm like that. My dad's like that. My brother's, it's some people are just genetically like that. So I have a really, really slow heart rate and a really, really low pulse, mm. which I think contributes to when I'm not moving extremities getting cold pretty quickly okay uh and that's just me so the badger whatever reason the western mountaineering badger it's the same degree it's like a 15 degree bag i believe as yeah. the chilkoot right yet it's with it's the the foot box the way the feathers are where they're positioned mm -hmm. i think it's just better designed they have the feathers in the right spot i don't feel like i have any dead spots my feet stay warm. My body stays warm in the back. I like the zipper. It doesn't get caught the same way because it's got the engineered flap there yeah. that, mm -hmm. that right. makes it easy to zip and unzip. Yeah. So I like the exterior shell. That might weigh a touch more. I don't know. But the cut, 
the cut is a thousand times better. The Chilkoot has a, uh, it, you might as well stand. I'm kind of bow-legged, put my feet together and then tie a rope around my knees. Like that's mm-hmm. what I feel like when I'm in the Chilkoot, I cannot spread my legs. <laughs> yeah. And I need, my man parts need to breathe or I like <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, get angry. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so the, I can spread my legs quite a bit and feel comfortable with the Chilkoot, the foot box, the, the, the foot box all the way to where about where your knees are like the same width. It's not tapered. It's just like a tube. Yeah. And then it tapers after that. Yeah. Well, when you're shaped like me, I mean, it doesn't matter if from the knees, from the thigh up, it's super open. Yeah. Because I can't spread my legs still because the foot box is this wide. Right. And uh, so for me, it's the cut was a problem too. Yeah. Yeah. Last year in, in, in my, uh, in my um, fall guiding season, I did run mm-hmm. the, uh, the Western Mountaineering Apache 15. Um, that was a great bag. It, mm. it doesn't weigh, I, I think it's two pounds and change. Mm-hmm. It's, it's super, super light, very, very packable. Uh, that, that did a great job. And I, I used it all of August and a little bit into September. By the time September came around, I, I wasn't doing um, the backpack hunts. It was all just kind of based out of a, a spike camp. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it, it wasn't like a mobile type of a hunt. And so as September came and up in that part of the state, we were getting uh, <laughs> approaching wintertime a lot sooner than we are in, in our hometown here in the, in the central part of the state. Mm-hmm. And so I actually switched to my 20 below zero Wiggies bag. But again, mm. I didn't have to worry about weight. I'm not packing the stupid thing. Right. So why wouldn't I bring my basically comforter slash sleeping bag? I can sleep in my, you know, undergarments and uh, just, you know, completely <laughs> be comfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have to sleep in, in, in any of my layers. But that 15 yeah. degree um, Western Mountaineering bag, I, I was very hesitant to use that because number one, it's not treated down. It's just natural down. And there is a theory that I was not aware of until last year when I was shopping for sleeping bags about this treated down and how it is affected by repeated packing and unpacking and packing and unpacking. And that treatment that is applied to the down feathers inside that bag has the potential to have those feathers stick over time. Mm, yep. And it's not clumping necessarily, but then when it does get wet, it clumps a lot faster and it affects the longevity of the bag. So over time, um, without tedious care, and again, this is not every treated down bag on the market because mm-hmm. there are a lot of them now. Everybody, well, a lot of companies out there that have down products make a down sleeping bag. And they love to advertise that their down is treated down. Mm-hmm. And, and everybody does the, the little cup of water test where they pull out a handful yeah. of feathers. They have a little plunger. They push it down in there and it pops back up. Okay, that's, yep. a, that, that's a five-second test. That's, that, <laughs> right. that, that's not a field example. Right. Uh, Dalton, it also get, get this is thing not, soaked. like you said, a field example. That's really what I want because yeah. it's a system. Right. It's how you've put the feathers in it's right. the type of material on the outside of the feathers right. 
it's the shape, the cut, where yeah. the warm pockets are supposed to be versus yeah. not, whether the feathers stay lofty over time versus not. Like to take that little thing and say, this is spirit because it's made with this. It's just, it's the whole system. Yeah. You're not testing the system, you're testing the sliver. So for me, I hate those kind of tests. They're yeah. pointless. I agree. Mm. I agree. But yeah, so over the course of that August season, um, two full sheep hunts and several caribou in between off and on. And, uh, and then the beginning of September when I used it, um, never had the bag go flat. And a couple of times I climbed into that bag wet mm. and I never had an issue mm. with it. And I, I, I was really hesitant to bring a down bag for, for a scenario like that. And of course, this is another reason why having a heat source in your TP tent is of great benefit because in the event that you do get your down sleeping bag a little bit wet, you have the ability to dry it out. Yeah. Um, but e even when I got mine a little bit wet, it was never a problem. It always dried yeah. out. It was never a big deal. Now, the other thing I mentioned earlier about your feet being able to sweat a copious amount of moisture oh, yeah. out of your body. So a lot of folks love to um, sleep barefoot in their sleeping bags. It's it's a comfort thing. Mm -hmm. It it just feels nice to get out of your sweaty socks. They just you mm -hmm. know put their socks inside their sleeping bag to kind of dry out from their body heat over the course of the night, which is not a problem. But if you have your feet that are wet and clammy and you're still going to sweat at night, oftentimes guys are sleeping. I know usually in August, even if it's a nice warm day, I'll usually sleep in like a merino shirt. Mm -hmm. and my merino bottoms. I don't yeah. particularly care for that feeling of skin next to a sleeping bag. I feel like I'm sweating even if I'm not. Yeah, I agree. I just don't like that feeling. So I sleep with I, I sleep with like a thin merino wool layer on. But then if I go I, I've noticed that if I go barefoot, I'll wake up in the morning and the bottom of my bag feels damp. So something I did this last fall and I, and I don't know if you've tried this before, tell me if you have. Mm -hmm. They make Gore-Tex lined socks. And there's a couple mm. different brands that they make. Mm -hmm. I heard this, um, I believe uh, Barklow had one of his winter camping videos out um, some time ago. And I saw yeah. this, I, I, and, and, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think that's where I heard this from. But I bought a pair of those socks and, and they're not cheap. They're like 60 bucks for a pair of socks, okay? And I bought one at, at a local mountaineering store this last summer before I went out to start the season last fall. And I would sleep in those socks. After a day in the hills, pounding out miles, you mm -hmm. get in your bag, you rip off your, your sweaty, saturated socks, your feet are just mm -hmm. wet and clammy. And I would just pull those socks on. And they're waterproof, but they're breathable. It's like a Gore-Tex liner. Yeah. Yeah. And the whole idea is that you don't get moisture directly transmitted into your bag mm. in liquid form. So you don't mm -hmm. get a wet spot in the, in, in the foot box of your bag. Right. It's already kind of vapored by the time it gets It's evaporating out. through yeah. your sock so that you're not getting the moisture transfer. And that works wonders. And it's really handy to have a waterproof pair of socks if nature calls in the <laughs> middle of the night. You can just get oh, up, yeah. step outside your tent. And stand in the grass and, you know, Interesting. Answer, answer the call and you get back in your bag, wipe off your sock and you're good to go. Mm. But that is a really, really good trick. I had never heard of it before until last summer and it works uh -huh. like a charm. 
for not getting that foot box wet. Mm. Ryan and I are like two homeless guys. Um, <laughs> so it would literally like all that, all that thing you described, you know, we just climb in bed and go to sleep mm. with our pants on and our socks and everything. And I just check for ticks. He's showing my ass. Do I have one here? <laughs> and then I climb in the bag. I really, um, I, I will say this. I don't like barefoot and I don't like my legs uncovered because yeah. you get sticky and grimy. Yep. Yep. And I yep. cannot sleep. Yep. Yep. If my skin touches my skin, I have to have something in between. So typically, like I'll be wearing those Kuyu Katana or like a ass. I don't know, like uh, Apex pant from Sitco or something, whatever yeah, I'm wearing. Right, right. Uh, sometimes a piranha, you know, and I will basically climb in my sleeping bag um, and I wear the Smart Wool Zero Cushion Classic sock, okay, which is just like a liner. It's a thin black liner that's 100% merino mm -hmm. or not 100, but it's real close. I've tried lots of other liners, but that little tiny black liner is the mm -hmm. best. And yeah. I can wear that thing for six, seven days of pretty heavy hiking. Yeah. I might bring, I'll bring two liners usually in three or four days in, I might switch the liner, but I'll wear the same darn tough for 12 days in a row mm -hmm. over that, yeah. over that liner. Yeah. When I go to bed at night, I typically slip off the darn and just let them kind of float in the bag somewhere. Yeah. But I'll keep the smart wool liner on. Mm. So my feet aren't, they wick away moisture. They're yeah. merino. They, they withstand scent and all that kind of stuff fairly well. And I'll just keep my pants on and I'll just sleep yeah, just like that. And uh, the last little bit though, I've been bringing some merino uh, long john boxers that come down to my, like my knee just like hmm. shorts. Okay. And those have been handy because sometimes you fall in a Creek, you get your pants soaking wet or just something goes South mm -hmm. and it's a, it's able for, I'm able to take my wet pants off and hang them. That, that peaks teepee has the cross pole design yep. Yep. in the top. Yep. Man, I can just hang my uh, wet pants over that. My wet socks up in the rafters. I call yeah. it the rafters up there. Right, right. Stove will be going. I go to sleep, and I'm sleeping in my pants. And I pretty much sleep in my pants because I want them nice and dry in the morning. Yeah. Because of the fibers that we're using, like the katana, like I can wear those every day for three weeks, mm -hmm. and it doesn't bother me. Mm -hmm they they dry out within a little bit of time in my bag that night the next day if there's any moisture on them at all they 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 seem to not get funky and gross and you know nasty down there i i found it you know so we just wear our pants to bed yeah like long johns or something that's just too much work let's mm -hmm. put on pajamas and you know stuff <laughs> like that it's like right it. I mean, I, that's if I take my socks off at all. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's it's pretty. Uh, we're pretty lazy so about that. Well, you're just basically going straight from the binoculars straight into the sleeping bag, and then you're just off in the la la land. I do a tick check. Oh, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Right. So I do a check. So we check. don't have ticks up here. I know. Yeah. We yeah, I'm sure you know well, that, that's God's country. We do right there. Have you ever found a tick on you? 
Not on me, but I found them on some animals. Mm, yeah. Yeah. You don't yeah. have ticks by the hundreds by the hour. No, no, no. no. We don't have like ticks that. bad enough where I got to show my hunting partner my posterior at night and say, here, check me out. That's right. We have, we're plagued. It's a lot of ticks. Yeah. Um, and it's funny, you know, it's secret. Here's the thing. Uh, there's no question that uh, probably, you know, I mean, I'm not very shy and I, I classify myself as shameless. And so, you know, I'm like, I want to make sure there's no ticks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And sometimes I'm not in the mood to walk, you know, 40 feet away. So nobody, it's like, turn around or look at me. I don't give a damn. <laughs> and I, I am buck naked and I'll stand by the fire and I'll be like checking every groove yeah. in the full buck. And, uh, Brian will, you know, pretend like I'm not there. And what's so funny is, and I, I don't really care. I have never seen Ryan skin above his elbow. Mm -hmm. And it, uh, I've seen from here down his face and his ankles. Like I've never seen any other part of his body. Well, the man is private. <laughs> He just doesn't care, he, you know. He, yep. I, you know, maybe he's of the opinion that if the ticks are there, then they've earned it. You know, maybe he's just trying. <laughs> uh, to he's back. uncanny. He he does checks, but he uh, <laughs> for some reason the hair on his body they go right here behind his ear mm, every yeah. single time, a hundred percent of the time. He never finds them. They always migrate to this spot, huh. and he just picks them off. Weird all day. Interesting. Yeah. See why that I'll is. get him. Yeah. I'll get him taken up shop somewhere. So I have to, you know, I'm I'm yeah. checking all the little spots. Yeah. But yeah, we we but, had a lot of them growing up in Kansas, so I'm well familiar with all yeah. the different places ticks can get but, into. But so. I will like rolling if it's a if it's a wettish. We try to use the fire if we pack the stove, which is mo 99 percent of the time. We try to start a fire unless it's really warm outside. We'll start a fire just for the enjoyment of it. Mm -hmm. just throwing some wood get a little fire going it's it's 60 70 degrees in the teepee um you dry out if there's any dampness from sweat or whatever the, all those wool layers that we run typically in a little bit of heat in there they clean up their own just because the natural fiber that it is and then yeah when you're a little bit dry you've had some dinner uh out of a freeze-dried meal then you just tuck in and fall asleep and the fire burns out and yeah. um, everything seems clean and dry and there, there is no, uh, yeah, I, that's kind of how we roll and then get up in the next morning and just roll. We, we don't, uh, yeah. there, I don't, I, I do like the comfort of a sleeping bag liner, mm -hmm. but I'm not going to pack it. Yeah, I do like the comfort of long johns, but I'm not going to pack it. Mm -hmm. You know, I do. I do like those things. I just not going to pack it. Cause yeah, weight. that's that weight to convenience ratio mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, right on. I um, man, this is not approaching our quite longest one, but it's it's getting there. Yeah. Or what? <laughs> should we should we wrap up? I mean, it is after midnight over here. Yeah, I was gonna I, say I, it's it's after ten. I think we're time, probably so. keeping you up from your bedtime. So yeah. Well, hey yeah. man, 
we uh we really appreciate you coming on and sharing your knowledge and and kind of yeah help everybody out. this has been great you know with with spring bear coming up i mean this is all great stuff for people to know and and i i'm i know i'm super excited to get out there yeah. i can't wait man this yeah. is <laughs> just watch it it's hard when it's snowing outside right now yeah but it's <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's it should tough. be should be illegal for it to get up to like 45 degrees and then drop back down to zero and snow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's been 10 yeah, below yeah. here in the morning for the last several days straight. So I'm yeah. kind of over it already. It's m messing with our emotions, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> well, um, I guess just uh, to wrap up, while you're on your hunt, you need yeah. to be protecting your rifle and your posterior that hey, we talked about that's right <laughs> with the uh with the stealthy hunter rifle cover and glassing pad that will cover your seat and uh, protect you from the elements and will protect your rifle from the elements as well it'll cover up your scope and your action and the end of your barrel so that if you do end up being fortunate enough to take a shot and you're out of electrical tape to wrap up the end of your barrel with mm -hmm. your crown cover will also do that job for you and you can shop all of that along with all of the nutrition uh, nutrition supplements <laughs> over at uh, stealthyhunter.com. And you can shop from Ryan and Hillary Lampers over there. And we have a discount code through them at checkout. Use the discount code, the Northern Hunter. And you can also use that code over at Yukon River Knives to purchase any of your hunting knife needs. Inevitably, when you are uh, um, at your, at your uh, point of your hunt where you need a skinning, or you're fleshing a hide back at camp, or you're deboning meat, whatever it is, they have a knife for that job. And uh, our other partners, go ahead and check out Batum 907. Absolutely. Um, mm. Get some of their stuff ordered here as bear bait season approaches. Um, try out the Nasty Boar. The Stripper Glitter is the Sowin Heat Estrus. Yeah. That stuff is awesome. It, it, we have Those killed... Uh, great names. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, the, 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 the marketing behind Batum 907 is nothing short of genius, Ryan. It's nothing short of genius. Sounds but, like it. But uh, make sure that you go over there to Batum 907 and shop all their products. They are, of course, a local Alaska company with Jess operating out of the mm -hmm. uh, Palmer Wasilla area. She's been a great help to us over the years and uh, has contributed to the killing of hundreds of bears and many more to come in Alaska and other states that still allow the great practice of bear baiting. Oh, yeah. And uh, not to forget about our other uh, remaining partners, Weatherby Rifles. If you're uh, in search of a rifle for your upcoming needs this year, be sure to check out the backcountry rifles that Weatherby offers, either in the Mark V or if uh, you're looking for a little bit more of an affordable price point. They also have the Vanguard, and they have some exciting things coming up this summer, so keep an eye out mm -hmm. for that as well. Mm -hmm. They've got uh, no end to their innovation over there at Weatherby. Adam does a great job with that business. And then last but not least is Hammer Bullets. Absolutely. Um, I have a load currently being worked on with the uh, with a 338 RPM and a 205-grain Hammer Bullet. Mm -hmm. And I can't wait to get that out to the range this week as long as it's not 25 below zero. <laughs> but so if you have any questions about Hammer Bullets, go to their website at hammerbullets.com and shop any number of their many, many different options. Every caliber you can conceive of, they've got it, and mm -hmm. it's probably in stock, which is a rarity in this economy. It is. So uh, make sure that you go check out Hammer Bullets and see their innovative design. Yeah. And hey, if we, uh, just in case our podcast happens to reach anybody who's been living in a box and doesn't know where to find you, Brian, why don't oh, you go yeah. ahead and plug, plug wherever they can get your great content. 
You bet. Uh, ch- look for me on YouTube, Brian Call Gritty, and uh, wherever podcasts are found, Spotify, Apple, whatever, you can find the Gritty Podcast there. You can find me on Instagram, but I won't respond to anything there. No, hardly. no, no sliding uh, into the DMs, huh? <laughs> no, not really. I mean, <laughs> I'd have to be on it to see the DMs. You might, Brad will respond sometimes. You can get lucky, but um, we, 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 uh, we, our heart and soul is not in social media, really. So we like making movies. We like making podcasts. We like these kinds of long conversations. They're just fun with good people. I think that's a valuable piece of content. A photograph and some piffy uh, saying just doesn't do it for me. uh, (laughs) You're in the business of making bear films and friend business is a booming. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) That it is. All right. Well, hey, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. It's been a great pleasure getting to talk to you and pick thank your you, brain Brian. about all this stuff so you too, yep. guys thanks for your yep. time thank and, you and uh hopefully everybody listening enjoyed the show if you did make sure you're uh subscribing to it on whatever platform you're listening to give us a rating and send it to all your friends so they can learn how to hunt bears and everything else up here in alaska or wherever you happen to be as well uh if you have any questions or comments on anything we talked about in this show make sure you hit us up on our socials we do tend to respond and uh, <laughs> uh, you can find us at The Northern Hunter on either Facebook or Instagram. Or if you go to our website, thenorthernhunter.com, we have a nice, big, easy to see contact button right there. You can get to us. Right on. So we are, uh, that's it for this show. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see you next so, week. Get Thanks, out guys. there. Get after it. And good luck. Appreciate you guys. See you next week. <laughs>